Hey everybody, this is Carlos. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with Chris Gilbert of Gilbert Boas. Chris is a great boa breeder who focuses not only on boa morphs, but also on sand boas. We're going to talk about how he got involved in the hobby and his plans for the upcoming season. We're also going to talk about his work with the leopard and blood gene and how they're poised to be the next big thing in the hobby. Finally, we're going to talk about how spending a little bit of money on your boa setups can lead to increased breeding success. Boa Rack Radio is on the air now. Welcome everybody to Boa Rack Radio. I'm your host, Carlos Rojas of Morphs Unlimited, and with me is my co-host, Thomas Cobb of Boa Addicts. Tom, what's up, brother? Good. Uh, same old, different day. Yeah, man. So our guest today is uh, Chris Gilbert of Gilbert Boas. So Chris is based out of Pennsylvania. He's well known for his outstanding work with various boa morphs, but also he's a longtime sand boa breeder. And uh, we really are going to get into that stuff because that is something that a lot of people are slowly picking up on and uh, shifting in that direction. Chris, welcome to the show, man. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, Chris, uh, for those of you that don't uh, that are listening that don't have the pleasure of knowing about you, um, give us a little bit of your background and how you got involved with boas. Uh, sure. So, um, growing up, uh, living out in the country, dad would always catch snakes in the yard and keep them for a little while and then let them go. But it wasn't until uh, 2001, um, I was in eighth grade, got a pet ball python for Christmas that year. And that just started opening the door into to research and to... Uh, you know, what the animal was that I had. And that led down the uh, world of kingsnake.com and the online forums. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the breeders and all the books and everything else. And it just took me di- on a deep dive to boas and pythons. So um, I ended up going pretty crazy initially. Uh, went Second snake I ever had was an Amazon tree boa. Then oh, I wow. had um, some Solomon Island ground boas and then uh, rough scaled sand boas. So I bred those rough scales uh, my sophomore year in high school. That was 2004. Uh, produced a nice little litter. And after that, I was hooked and uh, liked the idea of this whole live breeding thing and not having to worry about eggs and started going uh, with the boa morphs after that. So that took me on a tangent for a number of years. And then I, I started getting back into uh, the sand boas in 2017. And then um, back into the tree boas in 2018. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So let me ask you something. Um, outside of reptiles, what are some of the other things you're into or things that you're passionate about? Um, personal interests. Uh, I, I do a lot of home remodeling and uh, design work there. And um, you know, I guess finance is both my career and a, a passion and interest there as well. And just business in general and uh, a little bit of interest in cars as well. Oh, cool, dude. So um, what about finance? Like what attracted you to kind of that profession? And the, and the reason uh, I'm asking is because my daughter's actually studying that at uh, Arizona State right now. So. Uh, I went on a very big tangent there as well. Uh, I originally was going to school for aerospace engineering. And oh, really? uh, huh. uh, then, you know, you had a bunch of, uh, you know, this is pre-financial collapse of the world. And right. Which we're going through another <laughs> I, I like that example. <laughs> right. And um all, all the uh, big banks are coming up for recruitment events and uh, talking about the world that I, I didn't know existed. So that's what kind of took me down that. I figured that would be an interesting way to broaden my horizons and uh, see some new challenges. Oh, nice, man. So um, when uh, you started taking um, kind of the snake breeding a little bit more seriously, did, did, was there some sort of event or something that kind of made you – 
take that next step from you know recreational uh, collector into into a small scale breeder and then eventually into like a bigger scale breeder kind of what so, was some of those uh, kind of defining moments sure so whenever I first um, got into things uh, I was just picking up a couple different uh, morphs here and there uh, I was sophomore in high school so certainly didn't have much money um, but had the uh, old boa constrictor manual that little small paperback book had the pictures of all the different uh, morphs at that time point so I would go through there look them up put them on you know go through Google and see what came up see what the breeders came up you know you a lot of people had their websites you could either type in their name.com or type in the morph.com and somebody had a uh, domain name registered to it right um, looking up the blood boas in that book I came across Tom Burke and then through him, uh, through his website, also came across the leopard boas and a lot of the other Nicaraguan stuff. Nice so man. it started right with there. And um, so that was 2004. The first bloody salmons were produced. And those that was the first time actually, and I don't know of any other point in boa history, where a morph actually shot up in price. So before the bloody salmon was produced, blood boas had been $3,500 for forever. Right. After that bloody salmon was produced, they went up to 75 grand or I'm sorry, 7,500. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, the, the bloody salmons are 15,000. Um, it was at yeah, the top of the, the morph game. And, um, certainly that pushed them way out of my price range. Right. But, uh, talking with Tom, I ended up getting a pair of, uh, possible heads, uh, from him. And then with that, you know, my other interest is the leopards and I worked and saved every penny that I could make, uh, that summer. And uh, saved up enough money to buy a leopard boa. Um, the by the actually the following year uh, from Hans Winter directly in Germany had it shipped over before right before Daytona that year, and um, so had, had my little foundation there. Right, I had the, the, the leopard boa, and I had the uh, possible head bloods from Tom. So, uh, 2007 um, spring semester, my freshman year of college, uh, that was the first time I that. Previous season was first time breeding Imperator, and I got those possible head bloods to breed. Fortunately, I didn't hit, but as everybody knows, putting two 66% heads together is a long shot, but still right. got a healthy litter and um, just kept going from there. Um, one of the animals that I had acquired early on was a really nice orange tail hypo, and that was kind of my first vision into looking at something and saying, you know, I, I'm not going to. If I'm going to breed anything, I, I obviously need to be able to find homes for these animals. Um, I can't go out there and compete with somebody that's producing a thousand albino boas or a thousand jungle boas. Right. So what am I going to be able to do to differentiate myself? Well, you know, there's a couple of people working with leopards. They've been in the country since 2002. You know, they should be up to breed right now. Other people are going to probably be producing them. So. I shouldn't just go make more leopards. What I should do is say that hypo that I had, I really like her color. It'd be really cool if I could get this marbled pattern on this leopard in that. So I'm going to breed and make hypo head leopards. So that was, uh, I actually had a, a number of things going on at, at the same time. So the, the other one, in addition to these, these two key morph projects that have kind of been going along since uh, I started, I was big into locality boas. And right. um, I had the opportunity whenever uh, Costa Rica had allowed some exports in 2004. Um, Ernie Eisen was the importer. I got them through Kevin Barnett, then of Ectothermics, who um, 
a lot of people know the name that have been around for a long time. Um, he was big on breeding Bolivian boas. Yep. And uh, he had brought those in. Got, he was really good at acclimating wild cotton import animals. Um, I had a chance to get those and subsequently some Panamanian boas. So all these things were being raised up at the same time. Um, and it all kind of came to fruition that year for the 07, 08 season. So here I am. I've got a leopard boa, an orange tail hypo, some Liberia Costa Ricans that had never been bred in the U.S. before, um, the Panamanian boas that had never been bred in the U.S. before, uh, a couple other things. We're working on trying to work on the, the blizzard project before everybody found out that the Type 2 entry and the Calabino weren't actually compatible. Right. And um, that first year there, I just went by the same advice that I had from prior years and went with the same temperatures and I wasn't getting anywhere with my leopard stuff. And uh, that was, you know, leaning back then towards the locality uh, knowledge and expertise that I got from Gus Renfro and Vin Russo and then talking to Tom Burke who had been working with leopards. They said, you know, you're just keeping them too hot. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm already cooling them. You know, I already did a night drop, everything else. Said, no, colder, colder. And um, so took the advice. It worked. Um, that year, I ended up producing the orange tail hypo het leopards, um, the first uh, Liberia Costa Rican boas born in the U.S. Um, and we also produced uh, the Panamanian boas for the first time um, in captivity that were documented pure um, after Panama had a, lifted a 10 year hiatus on export bans back in 2005 when we bought those animals. So it was a big, you know, kind of all rushing in at once. And now I've got a bunch of new stuff that nobody else has. And that really helped get my name out there and both on the morph side and on the locality side. And I just spun it from that point on. Yeah, man. So I, and that's honestly where I first heard from you was uh, actually your work on the locality stuff, right? So I think that's probably what, what a lot of the people that are listening that are familiar with you probably know you from. So um, you mentioned uh, kind of briefly along that, that uh, you know, uh, you received some uh, help and assistance from uh, Vin Russo and then Tom Burke. Were there any other people um, besides there who kind of mentored you in the beginning and kind of gave you tips as you kind of matured through the BOA game? Um, those were the two big ones along with Gus Renfro. Um, other ones that were smattering in there, um, uh, Sean Bradley at Exotics by Nature oh, and he, Celia Chen worked with yeah. him at the time. Uh, Mike Weitzman, basically Boas, and yep. um, also had uh, Jeremy Stone and um, Dan and Colette Sutherland with uh, Snake Keeper. So I had uh, been talking with all of them, and most of those names had bred leopard boas by that point. Um, right. There weren't very many people breeding those. Obviously, Gus wasn't one to breed that. It was a morph boa. That was a no-no for him. And yeah. uh, I certainly had to uh, tread lightly with uh, getting further information from him <laughs> as he knew that I was working, not only working with morphs, but I took a pure Sonoran leopard and bred it to an orange tail lipo. So, right. blasphemous. Yeah, yeah. he, he was going to be uh, a little bit unhappy with that scenario. So, dude... Um, they, they were both morphs, though. So, in that regard, I was yeah. taking two ruined animals to start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so means to an end. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, man, you know, you ended up producing some real good stuff, you know. So, let's talk, talk a little bit kind of your current uh, primary project focuses. I know you've touched on the blood and on the leopard stuff that's kind of continuing. But let me know some of the other uh, boa morphs that you're currently working with and maybe some of the other localities that you're currently working with um so both the the blood and the leopards actually took a ramp up um in 2010 um 
Delaware had outlawed breeding boas. Uh, that was one of the things that spun out of the culmination of efforts to try to make a, a national ban on boas and other large constrictors. And um, Bill Kirby uh, was, you know, the only boa breeder really in the state there, and he was forced to close up shop sell off his collection. So um, myself and Kevin Blumenthal pretty much split most of Bill's collection. And uh, with that came the Motley Het Leopards that fit in on the, the existing Hypo Het Leopard project that I had. Um, they came with the Nicaraguan T positives. It came with the um, hog bloods and uh, jungles, possible het blood. So that's what I, and an original bloody salmon from 2004. So I use those animals and um, working with them directly and some, some of them that I'm still breeding uh, have created what I'm working on now, which is just continuing to evolve those blood and leopard genes. You know, Bill had the foresight to look at a blood boa and say, you know, these are red, but they get dark. And how can we improve the color? And one thing that we were also seeing was now that they were being bred into Colombian morphs, not only did they get dark, but they were getting brown. Right. Uh, certainly wasn't attractive you know you, you get an animal it looks pretty as a baby and then two years from now it's brown you know we don't we don't we don't want to create ball python morphs here right uh we want stuff that's going to improve with age so we he went and you know looking at again on those bases of those different localities said you know what can i introduce here that's not going to be another mutation that could add another wrench but what is going to i can enhance on this naturally so he took a pure salvador blood brought it to hog island um, made very light colored crosses that were hets and right. then made bloods from those which have been able to maintain their color um, as adults. So I continued, I produced more of those, um, took his jungle possible het bloods, bred those in, um, produced the ambrosias in 2012. Uh, that led to then reading back to the original bloody salmon, producing salmon ambrosias in um, 2016. Uh, also took Nicaraguan hypo blood bred it back to his um, hog hats and produced some uh, type 2 ghosts and hog bloods that were um, using Nicaraguan hypo and have the hog lineage in there. Um, and then also uh, hypo motley blood. So those animals now are just getting to the point where they're able to breed. Um, some of them are being paired up right now, some of them will be paired up next year, but it's just to continue that to the next step, you know just different combos within in that range uh, and just trying to make them just more colorful boas. And on the leopard side, um, you know, the, those original orange shell hypos and the, the motleys had produced the, the eclipse and hypo eclipse and hypo leopards over the past few years. And I never kept a whole lot of those, um, but I always kept a few leopard stuff. And I was more interested in one of the projects that I couldn't do until I got the animals from Bill was uh, mixing in the Nicaraguan T positive. And in right. 2011, I did that with my original uh, leopard male. And he, um, I, I've only ever used my original leopard male to make hets of different things. I haven't used him to make more leopards. And those double het T positive leopards, again, I took a nice light blood, kept a pure Sonoran, you know, try to limit the other genes in there, cut out Panamanian from hypos everybody else was using, cut out Colombian from all other mixed lineage, just try to keep it as basic as possible. Right. And um, so I made the uh, the double heads, uh, T-positive Nicaraguan leopards. By the time I made mine in 2011, double visuals were already produced, but 
where do we we don't see them anymore, right? Nobody's. Right. It seemed like a dead project. Well, 2016, I hit on a Sunglow T positive leopard that is and has been one of the most mind blowing combinations that's ever existed. And um, so I'm, that's a big focus now. And then um, that original. And, and again, I can attest to that animal too because I remember I think it was Tinley in 17 was the last time I went and and you know I I always see you there in October when I go. You had that animal on display and. You know, you can see these pictures and stuff online, and a lot of the time people are like, oh, I'm trying to cap capture their natural essence so much better than the photos can explain. And I'm not a huge, huge fan of, of non-VPI T-Paws stuff, but when I saw this particular animal, I was astounded with the amount of color. But to harken back to what Chris had said, like his entire project focus since he began was to kind of build upon the you know like blocks like you need a strong foundation to build a, a better top right the animal has only gotten better from the progressive pics that i've seen of this snake that he's given me over years and that he's posted online the animal is 10 times or 100 times even more colorful and vibrant than it was as a baby and a lot of the times you see these these animals as babies and they're phenomenal but then that right. two-year mark hits and you're like oh it's very unimpressive and that particular T-positive leopard that he produced, the Sunglow, is, I mean, still to this day, an absolute phenomenal animal. And, you know, has has I've, I've regretted not getting into leopard as much after seeing some of the stuff that Chris has done. And, you know, hindsight's always twenty I've had some, but I got rid of them all. And then, you know, now I'm like so far behind on most projects that I probably won't join too much in. I got one project I'm doing, which is way out of Chris's wheelhouse, at least for now. Maybe in like two years, he's going to be a punk and try and copy me because that's that's My copy, what happens. I'm, I'm leaping, I'm leapfrogging ahead of you. <laughs> leapfrogging, leapfrogging, yeah. <laughs> so, guess, man. I'll see you at Tinley. That's right, man. No, you won't. You don't go out. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to after this whole quarantine, man. That, that's what I'm crazy. saying. Yeah, yeah. So, dude, actually, let me ask both of you guys something. One of the things that I've kind of started noticing is that. Um, you guys are not alone in thinking that uh, some of the Central American blood really, if mixed correctly, will hold color significantly better than some of the Colombian stock, right? Um, do you guys think that as years begin to kind of progress throughout this hobby, we're going to see more people kind of dipping into the Central American stuff? I mean, I, I think, think I, I think, think so. With just diversity of stuff, you know, you're, you, yeah. you have those genes that they want to add in and they can't, you know, we're seeing it now with, um, the Inca stuff is going over. You know, there's as if there's not enough connected circle back ladder tail morphs in right. Colombians. They decided they needed to steal the Inca gene over there too. Yeah, Inca, but, Inca blew up because you know Dan, Dan's forty minutes from me over here down Sutherland at TSK, and yeah. I remember you know him and his wife Colette. They would always send me out blast emails, you know, like once or twice a year when they're kind of going through the collection. They're like, hey, do you want any of this stuff? Come grab it. And I mean, every single year for. I mean, I picked up racks from him in like 2012, so we're talking like eight years. There's always been Incas on there. And in the last two and a half to three years, you're seeing them go up exponentially in price just because now all of a sudden people are catching on like, oh, look what we can do. Look what it can add. And and like Chris said, you know, circle back ladder tail, well, there's a lot of them, right? There's not a whole major differentiation between a lot of them. But then when you couple in the color, the potential of other recessives added in there, 
you know, you're seeing a big influx of people. And then, I mean, size is a consideration too, because many times they, I mean, Chris is the king of having these, these age old boas that are five, six years old. And you would think that they were, you know, a average power fed keepers, one year old, but they're right. producing healthy litters. They'll drop like maybe what Chris, the, this last year you had that uh, your sun dragon litter, she dropped like five or six babies and one slug. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so when you're looking at the ratio of healthy babies, healthy mom, healthy dad, and then one slug, granted, you only get a small quantity of babies because the female's small, but she does perfect, right? Recovers well. She didn't even look like she had babies after one meal, you know? And so I think coupled with the, the size of these animals, people are kind of going towards that central line a little more because you can keep, God, if I had kept all central stuff, like, like the size of Chris's, I mean, I could have 2,000 snakes, in right. the same area that I do my collection right now. And, I mean, and not to mention for the same uh, feeding costs a lot of time. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd be, well, I'd be I was going to say, on, on that, that can be a negative, though, too, because I, I will say that, you know, you, you have a, an animal that is only producing five or ten babies versus one that's producing 50. Yeah, and, and your, your, your best yeah. example, what was your best example? It was your was your T-positive leopard, right? Your sun glow. Uh, didn't it take you like four four times or something to actually finally hit that snake? That or one, was it? Yeah, so well, the famous one is the eclipse. So the the Sunglow T positive leopard, I got really lucky on that. That was actually so I have I've been doing two projects simultaneously. One's for Sunglow T positive leopard. The other is for T positive blackberry. T positive blackberry I still haven't hit, but so each of those litters could produce just T positive leopards. Um, total on that project, I've done seven litters. Uh, I hit the Sunglow T positive leopard on the second attempt for Sunglow, but on the first attempt for Sunglow. I didn't hit any leopards or any T positives. Wow. I, just I had remember that. Four, four hypos and four normals. And I'm like, that's, that's rough. I'm like, well, the hypos split nicely. I got nothing else. And I'm like, if I didn't make the hits myself, I would have assumed that these are not het. Yeah, yeah. That's and, an odd. Uh, I mean, odds you should have had at least two. Right. right? And or then so we, we jump, you know, like the other project talking about, you know, the, the motley leopards, that was one that was hilarious because. Um, I, so many people would be like, oh, I'll just, it's just a motley leopard. Why do they cost so much? I'll just go make another one. Like, okay, go ahead. Uh, I don't, you know, anybody else that was making Eclipse stuff had stuff either from myself or Kevin. Um, I don't know that anybody actually started and did their own from, from scratch. I mean, I spent I, seven litters over uh, a three-year span before I hit on one Eclipse, and that's just a, a one-in-eight combo. And those were half Colombian litters, so I'm still getting 20 babies in a litter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and if he had not made this stuff himself again, he would have been like, nah, someone sold me some bunk stuff. And so, you know, that, that we, we've seen some funky odds throughout litters all throughout, I mean, the history of snakes. I remember Jeff Ronnie did one, uh, Colombian base, and I think he had 30, or no, maybe it was Ryan Horsch. He had like 33 babies in this litter, and it was a, it was a head to a head, I believe, and he got one visual out of it, <sighs> out of like 33 babies. Well, that was the, you know, the first litter for Calabinos that Pete ever produced. And that's the, the famous story. You know, I've, it was over 20 babies. Everybody's they're They're watching this female give birth and one after another, after another normals. And it was the last baby that was an albino. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I remember hearing that. And see, that's another thing that's wonderful about Chris, you know, for anyone who hasn't had the opportunity to like dive into the encyclopedia of boa knowledge, this guy is literally like, Boapedia when it comes to the history 
of animal, and that's why you know, because as being like a internet troll, the vast majority of my time, I enjoy watching Chris because he's not intending to troll, but he trolls it unintentionally just by proving that people don't know what the hell they're talking about, and I love it because then I don't obviously have to say anything. I mean, when it comes to like history and stuff, he he far outclasses me. You know, I'm 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 very novice in in comparison, but. Yeah, I mean, his knowledge base with that history, just being able to spell, oh, yeah, here, here's what Pete's first litter did, and it had this many babies, and look, the last one was that not even a lot of people know the origins of where everything that we have today comes from, and that's why having people like Chris in the game is so important, because well, they bring that knowledge. Absolutely. I wonder how many people know that they were like, I, I forget, now, so this is one where I'm going to forget, but I know Pete got two of the albinos, but there were between four or seven original imports. Right, and the original guys that got him could never get him to breed at all. Right, a couple of yeah. So died in captivity. Yeah, Pete, Pete comes along, never bred a bow ever. He says, "I'm going to invest in this project," <laughs> and and he produced. And you know, I've I've been told, you know, through Grapevine, but the the animals were around 18 months old, 20 months old. Yes, when they yeah, they were, they were very. And, and so you know, when you couple that in as as a novice, novice keeper, you know, never breeding bows before taking a notoriously genetically difficult animal because albinism itself is dysfunctional, right? So they're very sensitive and, and prone to issues and dying young and yada yada. And then breeding them at 18 or 20 months old and then actually hitting it. I mean, and then you look at what we're doing today and how available they are in combinations of the morphs. I mean, when you take back that snippet, that little smart small part in time where... If one thing went wrong, we might not even have what we got right now. I mean, it's 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 pretty kind of, it's really deep to think about, and it makes you more appreciative of what we have now. You know, I, I think people kind of lose sight on the beginnings, and you know, they they can't really appreciate everything that goes into it. And that's why with like a lot of stuff that Chris has has specialized in, people didn't really start to take notice when they were first draw. I mean, like the important people in the projects did, but general keepers weren't kind of like eh. But now. It's like I want bloods, I want bloods, I want bloods, I want hypo bloods. They're seeing well, all. We all we all saw the price of bloods just completely jump up the last three years. And, and, and it still is for the second time, it's, right? Yeah, it still is. I mean, I mean, what you could buy bloods for five years ago, as as neos, you're paying twice what what for like a good quality one. Of course, you're gonna pay I, I've more had, money I've now. had the same price on my bloods from when I made my first visual litter in 2011 until last year. And that's unheard of. That's unheard of. And that's right. and you know and I mean my prices are high, if anything. You know. Well, yeah, because you don't want to actually sell them. You price it so that like if people I, but want to. Pay I, I sell it. <laughs> I sell regular bloods, be, you know, between eight hundred to a thousand bucks for the fifty percent hog stuff, and whereas somebody can go out and just get you know a generic blood bow for five hundred dollars. Right. But yeah. That animal is they now know. Like I think I've driven that home enough too. Is ask for pictures of the parents because. I don't well, need to say anything else. <laughs> so, so you know, for for any any listeners listening in and and new people, that's a, that's a key thing right there. Ask for pictures of the parents because we can see these babies, and a lot of the times, babies are very vibrant and they're very colorful and they're cute and it's cool and it's neat. But then when they hit three years old or two years old, and you're just kind of like, oh man, like I love you, but what the hell happened? You know, like you were so pretty, and then you turned into the ugly duckling. You ask for pictures of the parents you really get to see what that lineage can bring to the table. And especially with bloods, I mean, I think that that's super... I mean, any any recessive morph, for sure. You, if you like anneries, you need to see what a quality anery looks like. If the parents are dark and dingy and brown, 
have that expectation out of the offspring unless something markedly was changed. You know, it goes across the board for all the morphs. You get what you pay for. No, absolutely, absolutely. man. And then one, one thing, I will say one thing with that. There are times where you might need a specific look to an associated blood, right, for a project that you're working absolutely. on. Absolutely. And we ended up talking a little bit about this in regards to like IMG morphs um, with uh, both Mike Roscoe of the Reptile Shop and then uh, with Tyler of uh, Chroma Constrictors, right? Right. Because like, for example, you look at an IMG, a lot of times you're going to have an IMG that as an adult is absolutely jet black. And then you'll have an IMG that is, as an adult is darker, right? It maybe is black in certain areas, but definitely the black isn't overpowering. Now to say one is better than the other is kind of dependent on what you need it to do for your future project. Absolutely. Right? So yeah, like I, I, I've had, so I had uh, one of the, actually one of the last boas that uh, Bill Kirby produced. He actually had a litter in 2010. Um, female was already gravid whenever the the law went into effect. So after she gave birth, I, I got a, a albino possible het blood from him, and so I ended up working that into the uh, bloody salmon, making some hats and keeping those back. And I had produced some, some sun dragons and red dragons this past summer. Um, but that was one Odds project King. that I did Odds not... King, by the way. <laughs> 13 babies and I hit three dragons. <laughs> yeah, Odds King. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, again, making up for those crappy ones and those other combos years ago. That's true. But, uh, <laughs> the, um, but that was one project that I intentionally did not use my hog blood stuff on. Right. Because, you know, the, the lighter colors of the hog, I was like, that's not going to help me. That's not going to do what I wanted to do. So I left it out. And I think yeah, that's one, the, one the, the darker that het will be, will, will right. typically feed into a darker visual form of that albinism, which I think a lot of people don't think about. Right. That's one thing that, you know, I, I've always looked at there is with my, you know, start with boas as a locality focused. I, I focused on those different nuances in uh, wild types what what traits are there as part of natural diversity and it, i think it helps with selective breeding then because then you know when you know the full lineage of these animals which bloodline is going to give you what you want and which is not going to give you what you want so now go back to my original hypo leopard project i picked a hypo that had thick saddles um, a bold symmetrical pattern and high pattern and high uh, saddle count pattern density right the idea was hypo obliterates pattern, pattern mutations. Yep. So I don't want to do that. I want to just take the leopard's marbled pattern and turn it orange. That first hypo leopard that I produced did exactly that. And there's a, a picture on my website and it's circulated the internet over the years back in 2012. I'm sitting there holding that one baby in my hand and it's a completely marbled hypo leopard. Now I kind of got lucky on that because I got that from the first litter and all the rest of them since then haven't actually come out marbled. But uh, you know, the ability to make that marbled pattern was there from focusing on the, the original female, the hypo females um, pattern itself and not just saying, oh, I'm just going to mix any hypo into a leopard or even just picking a hypo just for color, but looking at the pattern as well. Right. And I mean, like what you just did there is you essentially proved your approach, right? You came in with the mindset of what you wanted to produce and a theory of what it would do when these two genes reacted together. And essentially, when you, when you held that first baby, you knew that you had, you know, calculated correctly with that. Now, it worked, it worked right once. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So let's uh, pivot a little bit. Um, Talk a little bit about your work with tree boas and maybe some of uh, some of the items that some of the various uh, things that you're doing with them. 
so I am uh, actually very new on the scene with those. As I mentioned earlier, I was uh, that was my second species of snake that I ever had, but then took a hiatus from them. So in 2017, um, I picked up some uh, northern emerald tree boas, uh, getting back into things because I, I knew I always wanted to have basins one day, but I wasn't willing to spend the money for basins without t keeping some tree boas first and making sure that I wasn't going to do anything wrong. And... Um, so I had those for uh, a year or so. Then I pick, was able to pick up um, my my cousin down in Florida is big on tree boas. So he he's been you know nagging me like when are you going to do? I'm like listen, I, I had tree boas before you did, so I'll, I'll get there. But um, I I had this one vision in mind of these old uh, calicos that I I really wanted, and I said you know is anybody producing these? When one of those becomes available, I'll get it. So we were talking one night. And he said, you know, just check out this breeder's uh, page. So pulled up um, Rory Gresco's uh, website and uh, go to his page. And there on there is this awesome red female. And it's exactly what I wanted. There's no price tag on it, nothing. I'm like, well, I don't have any clout with this guy. He doesn't know who I am. So I have my cousin call him, say, can we get this? Throws out a number, pay for it, get that. And that just took me down on a quick dive. So... Last year, um, had the opportunity through you know cultivating that relationship with Rory to get some really phenomenal, um, uh, more red tiger calico combos there. Um, a lot of things. So, one thing that I'm trying to work on now is trying to unwind uh, a lot of the projects that all these breeders that have had success for a few, for for years, if if not decades, on tree boas that haven't really focused on. I'll just call it the predictability of recreating certain phenotypes right? and trying to figure out exactly what is a true mutation and statistically reproducible versus what are selectively bred traits versus, you know, that defining what is the wild type. And um, I have a lot of theories on that. Most of those aren't going to be public just yet, <laughs> but um, after that, you know, I got an opportunity um, uh, Finn Russo produced uh, an annulated tree bow litter, um, was able to pick up a female from there, and then just this past week was able to pick up um, a pair of Amazon Basin emeralds from Ed Marino, so rounded out the, the core group there. So um, you know, we've got both species of emeralds, annulated Amazon tree bows. Uh, the only thing we don't have right now are Ruschenbergi and uh, Grenadensis on the Corallus group, and then... Um, you know, the Malagasy and Solomon Island species for the uh, broader tree boa defined. So let me ask you, what specifically is attracting you over to the tree boas? Um, the curiosity and trying to figure out what's going on um, on the on the Amazon tree boas, trying to figure out what's going on with the genetics there um, and if answers can be found. Amazons are not well behaved. They like to bite. I've been fortunate so far and haven't been bit by mine. But um, with that, I said, you know, I, I, these are really cool animals, but I'd like to have some that I could actually interact with and handle. So that became the annulateds in the Amazon basins, which are a lot more um, trustworthy, I should say. Okay. Got it. Now, um, the, the, these are just, you know, they're, they're special projects to me because, you know, the, the kind of keeper that keeps tree boas is, you know, isn't the one that's going to be sending you a message on Morph Market saying, is it tame? They're not going right. to be the one saying, you know, what size, 
you know, how much does it weigh? What size food does it eat? Well, you, know, you could you could say what life. you actually mean on that one, Dan. And at the end of the day, if you're keeping tree boas, you need a higher husbandry skill level, right? Right. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really what it comes down to. So it it, it, help, it helps, you know, in, in that future, whenever I am breeding them, you know, I, it's just interacting with a customer that's um, going to have that different level of experience and um, I, I think is a positive thing. Yeah, no, definitely, man. So um, the the other I, other species I wanted to talk to you about was actually the Sambo. So Sambo is our, uh, one of those species that uh, for a while have flown under the radar a lot. There's always, always been this like community of hardcore keepers of Samboas who have developed this series of morphs. Um, what drew you into the Samboas? Um, you know, whenever I got my first ones, it was just one of those it, – finding those weird animals in, in the, the backs of your boa and python books. And um, the rough-skilled samboas in particular were neat because if you look closely at them, the head profile is the same head shape that you see on a boa constrictor or a tree boa or many pythons, you know, that, that curved structure. It wasn't the wedge shape like on the Kenyans um, or other uh, subterranean species. So that aspect is like, oh, they're just like a little mini boa but then they also act like a pit viper and they, you know, they will literally, they won't, oftentimes aren't going to open up their mouth and strike and bite. They will, but they will launch their entire body off the ground. Yeah. They literally jump headbutt you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, like I said, that was the first thing I ever bred uh, partially because it was, it was small, easy to keep. Um, you know, it doesn't require a lot of space. You have a, that's one of those species that you can actually go and say, you know, go get, go to the pet store and get a 10 gallon tank and put a heat lamp on and, it'll, and you'll do okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, w with that, um, I, I did build a, a fairly sizable group of rough scales, but also um, got into all the different uh, Kenyan morphs. So that was a funny one too, because the last time I had had sand boas, while I didn't have Kenyans, I still followed that. And back then a lot of the breedings that are done now were blasphemous. You know, there's, they wanted to keep things pure. So there were Rufessans, right. there were the Kenyans, there were the Egyptians. So like the uh, regular albinos are actually Egyptian sandboas and the paradox albinos were Kenyan. And there were a lot of people that didn't like the idea of crossing the Egyptian albino over and didn't like that snow project. VPI was actually the one that was doing the paradox um, snow project. So once if people listening don't know, paradox albino in Kenyan sandboas is a genetic mutation. It's recessive. That that spotting is going to come through. And it's an oddity in, in that world. Um, and uh, so now we jump forward and people crossed Rufessans over into Kenyans. That's what gave them the stripes and the tigers. The albinos and anneries, everything else is getting mixed in. Um, they then took you know, the locality to Doma um, from Tanzania, bred those in, created some other looks. So there, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. But I think the one that really leaped, uh, leapfrogged the Sanboas into more limelight was the, the paint mutation, which is a recessive color and pattern mutation. And it just, you know, widens out the pattern on the back and just that, that base color really comes through. And yeah, there, there's a there's a big hardcore following of people that really take them seriously and massive collections of them. But one of the big appeals there, so the inverse to the tree boas being for that, you know, more experienced keeper, the sand boas are the perfect one for that person getting their first snake. Right. The kid that's going to have an aquarium in their bedroom and 
They want the snake to be alive and healthy and be well and not suffer. Sambo's are perfect. So um, are there any specific projects within kind of the Sambo domain that have you excited right now? Um, I am literally doing a little bit of everything. Um, I have like one of each with the Kenyan stuff. Um, on the, the rough scales, it was just, I got a group. I got seven or eight of them. Uh, and there's, there's not a whole lot there. There's not any real true morphs. There's one like kind of a hypo. There might be a caramel gene, things going on, but uh, nothing conclusive. And then I also have um, Miliaris, which I, I, I'm uh, against using the common name of, So, but it's Ru the Russian Samboas. The reason I'm against that is they're from Kazakhstan, which yeah. at one point was part of the USSR, but Kazakhstan predated Russia and has never been part of Russia, so I don't like the idea of calling them Russian Samboas. <laughs> <laughs> it should be Kazakh Boas or just call them Miliaris, which is the scientific name, and we'll be good. But I have um, a Super Black is what it's called on that Um which I don't actually know the genetic detail on it. I think it kind of works like a dominant thing, but also kind of polygenic, selectively bred aspect. So um, unfortunately, I've only been able to get the original female that I got there, so I'm still hunting for a male. But uh, so I've actually got three different species of the Sanboas. And so just play around with it for fun. You know, they, they, they take up, uh, they, they as adults sit in my, baby racks for my boas so it's great <laughs> yeah no i bet and i think that's one of the big potentials with that species right is for those people that are maybe interested in starting a boa collection but obviously they're very limited in space but yet they'd still like to explore the genetics and explore the breeding that's kind of involved with it and essentially use i hate to say it this way but almost use the the sand boas to really understand what it takes to get a species to breed and be successful with it. That's yeah. a good place to start, right? Yep. I mean, that's what I did with mine whenever I, I bred them back whenever I was in high school. You know, it's just, hey, I've never bred snakes before, uh, you know, let alone the issue with live versus laying eggs. You know, it'd be cool to breed something that give birth to live young. And it's an experience that led me down the, the, the boa world for the past uh, almost 20 years now, so. Damn yeah, it's like the it's the rabbit hole, and and I think we've all kind of been there. Where once you get bit, man, it's it's hard to stop. I mean, that's why my page is called Bow Addicts because yeah. And my my parents like tripped out when I said that, right? Like when I came up with that name, they're like, "No, that sounds bad. Like everyone's gonna think you're a drug addict." And I was like, <laughs> I, was, "I was like, but that's like legitimately what it's like." Like you can't. That, that was that was my dad's joke. He's you know whenever I got those first bows from uh, Tom Burke, he said. You know, Tom Burke's like a drug dealer. He gives you a little bit of a sample to reel you in. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what happens, dude. Like, like they give you a taste, and then you're just you're screwed from then on out. And it really takes like an act of God to really pull people off. And you know, throughout the years, I, I'm talking like diehards. You know, like the people who you you can really feel like they they have a diehard passion for it. I mean, it would really take something super important to have you pull off of having a collection and growing it and you know, obtaining new projects and yada yada. Of course, we had the fly by nights. The people come in who just throw money around and think that, hey, it's easy, set it and forget it until they get a real dose of reality, try and breed and screw up and kill stuff. And then they're like, oh no, this isn't for me. You know, they'll eat 50 grand and walk away. But like for your diehards who have been dreaming of like literally having a zoo, which was my thought as a child, I just want, I have a third grade journal. You know how your teachers in third grade, they're like, oh, yeah, write down what you want to be when you grow up. My things, legitimately, I'm not even kidding you, was I wanted to be a doctor. And so I guess I'll do that when I get my PhD. 
uh, I want I wanted a Lamborghini. I'll get that when I feel it's justified. And then I wanted to be a herpetologist. I literally wrote that down when I was in third grade. And so like when I met my wife in 2010, I'm like, oh yeah, let's let's get a couple snakes again. And and so I grabbed some like call moon glow based stuff and just from there and now it's ballooned into like this massive operation where I'm it's just but I go in there, it's like cathartic and I enjoy it and I clean the animals and I check them and it's like fun, you know, I don't look at it as a chore work necessarily. You know, I enjoy it. And it's that rabbit hole that you just never can quite come back out of. Like I, I couldn't imagine not having snakes at this point. And I mean, Chris, he, he sent me the pictures of the Amazon basins that he was picking up. And I'm just like, God, Christ, like I wish I could right now, like so bad. And so I'm, I just, severely, I just taunt Thomas with all the stuff that he needs to get whenever he gets God, he does. And, and he tro- Dude, he tro- the too, struggle he's is like, real, man. You sent me a picture the other day, bro. <laughs> a messenger. I'm like, ooh. Yeah, well, so I have. That, how I have can 15, I work that in? <laughs> I think I have fifteen different species of snakes right now. So yeah, yeah. and 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 see, to me, I, I that's actually something that I want to do eventually. Is I do want to kind of get out of the the main boa stuff that I do, and I want to get into the more specialty niche. And that's like I think where Chris has really excelled in his obtainment of certain species, but not only certain species, but the quality and the lineage of those species when he goes back to like being able to deal with customers or, you know, prospective buyers in the future, he can lean back on lineage, lean back on quality, lean back on the history and lean back on his current care. It'll be no brainer on how easy it will be to move those animals that he want that he does want to move. Now I venture to guess when he breeds his basins for the first time at some point, you know, years down the road, I'm gonna have to recover the investment on that one. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, but you'll do that with your leopard and blood stuff because I venture to guess that you're gonna end up keeping all those damn things if you're not sending me something. But you know, it's it's uh, I, I'm highly jealous of of a lot of the projects that he has going on. I figure one day when I'm in a capacity to kind of learn the arboreal stuff, um, I, I and I you know I'll lean on Chris's knowledge for that, and once we get some cage manufacturers that can come out with something that justifies doing like a wall setup. I might dive in to that. I mean, I, I, I look at, at Chris in a very high esteem when it comes to the, the broad range of species that he keeps. Cause a lot of people just really struggle keeping even a quarter of that stuff. I mean, a lot of people can't even keep a boa well, you know, let alone like a, a basin or something that is such an expensive animal that if you screw up, you're going to feel that for a long time. Hundred percent, man. You know what's what's funny? One of the thing that things that you guys ended up saying there was that uh, you know, once you kind of get bit by the bug, you always have it, right? And uh, that's actually something that came up a couple of podcasts ago when I had Dave Schmidt, who's a, um, a, a former special operations guy. He was the same thing. He basically had boas, bred boas prior to being in the military. He goes in the military, does 10 years of special operations work. And as soon as he got any level of stability, what do you think was his first purchase? He bought a freaking boa, man. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a couch. It was a boa. I think the joke the joke is like – You can got sit on the floor. Kick. Yeah, dude. Well, the joke <laughs> with Tommy him – Tommy Matt, man. Well, you know what? The joke with him was that he got married so that he could get stability, so that he could get boas. You know what I mean? That was just him crutching, you know, trying to trying to say it was because of the wife. But in reality, he'd been hankering for it for a long oh, yeah, time. Dude, and see, the same thing happened with me is is I think once I had that stability, 
you know, once I had been married, we had my first son and my daughter was on the way. And I was like, well, I was, you know, I've always been in construction. So I was like, well, I could just build my own racks. I mean, this is simple enough. Sterilites this, you know, put some flex bar or what heat tape in the back, which is what I did when I first got back in. Right. And, you know, at that first year, I mean, I, I picked them all up in 2012 and I bred four pairings in 2012, hit all four in 2013. So That's I went insane. four for four. Yeah. So then when you hit, when you start hitting stuff, you know, like, like that year that Chris produced, you know, the two America's first, uh, or, you know, North American productions, captive bred, plus his, I think it was his leopard stuff or his blood stuff, whichever one he mentioned in the beginning. Um, when you have that level of success in your first time doing something you're like oh man i'm gonna keep going with this you know and then you just obtain obtain and get more and more and then you start keeping the stuff you produce and then you produce from the stuff you produce which is i think the ultimate goal that keepers should really strive for become self-sufficient in the lineage and the production of your animals because then you know through the line everything that's been done and put into that snake so you can give that to your your customers in the future yeah, no, absolutely, man. And you know what's actually funny? Uh, your kids, when they're exposed to that, they actually appreciate it. Like, I have a bunch of boas here that uh, my kids called the great-grandma boas, right? Which are boas that I think I picked up in, like, 2000-ish, <clears throat> who are now, like, retired breeders. But, I mean, they're still kicking around this place. You know what I mean? And they've produced tons of babies. They've made me a ton of money and, you know. These guys are kind of still hanging around over here, and their great grandkids are in my baby racks right now. So. Well, well, and that's neat because it, I think it puts a level of value on the animal beyond just a monetary sense, right? Uh, you know, one thing I always recommend to new people and prospective breeders is don't breed something if you're not willing to lose it. Because I don't care how good of husbandry you have, how much money you spent on the animal, the lineage that it has, or the racks or cages that you keep it in. None of that really matters because biology does not care about your opinion and it does not care about your bank account. Things can happen. And so if you have an animal that you love and you like you really love that animal and you don't want to risk losing it, don't breed it. But if, like us, you also have goals, you have to weigh the risk, right? And sometimes you get bit. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes And sometimes great things happen, you know? Boas, uh, boa keeping and just snake keeping in general, especially breeding, it's full of a lot of highs, but there's a lot of lows too that can come along with it if you're not prepared. Definitely, man. So Chris, let me ask you something. Um, give us some lessons learned um, basically when you started kind of setting up your reptile business. Um, so I, I don't really necessarily refer, like look at it as a business. I'm definitely just one of those hobbyist breeders. Uh, collections not massive. Don't produce a ton of litters every year. Just a, a few select pairings. Um, I think that's what one thing that's actually allowed me to diversify into species was, you know, because I kept so focused on most of my boa projects that, you know, like Colombian boas, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of morphs, and I didn't have that depth um, without dealing with that larger species. So freed up room to uh, get some other species instead. But um, the biggest thing that I learned early on, um, well, first off, if you're going to breed, buy babies. Don't buy adult animals. You know, raise them up yourself. Um, know their full history. Get from breeders that are going to give you that information to be successful as well. And from another thing from an early start was get the right equipment. You know, whenever I first got started, I had, I was getting bow file cages because that was the best thing that was available. Um, then I, I ran into some shortfalls that I felt with those 
and Analplastics had improved their product line and I switched over to there. Then I went to ARS and then Freedom Breeder and Vision Racks and now I have all um, ARS Hybrid and the new uh, Freedom Breeder stuff. And it's just always, you know, look what's available that'll make your life easier, make you provide more for the well-being and care and longevity and health of the animals and spend the money for it because it's going to pay itself off. You know, somebody looks at a, you know, just a, a large freedom breeder rack and they're like, well, you know, that's $3,000. That doesn't make any sense. Like, well, divide up the cost based off of the number of babies that are going to be housed in there. Like you fill it one time, it's paid for itself many times well, and, and, and the ease of care too, because right. what a lot of people don't realize with tub cleaning, the, the ease of cleaning in tubs versus reaching cages, I can clean an entire 1575 neonate setup. So 75 tubs, 15 levels high total. I can clean the whole damn thing in about an hour. So 75 snakes in one hour. And if you really want a quality clean, a reach-in enclosure, you're looking at like 20 minutes for one cage. Is if you keep on Aspen and stuff, which, you know, I keep everyone on Aspen. And, you know, then you're cleaning your floor because you're dropping the Aspen all over. And, I mean, you know, what is your time worth as well? Because if you can do 75 animals in an hour or you can do five in an hour, I mean, you up your ability to either keep a quantity or you lower your quantity of time used to care. I only, I keep, I have, I think around 380 to 400 right now and without babies um, from this year that'll be born shortly. And I spend roughly two to two and a half hours a day tops. And I'll usually have at least one day where I do nothing. So I'm maintaining my whole collection in a really high standard for, I mean, roughly 20 hours a week, you know, and, and specifically because of the tub style cajun that I use with the freedom breeders, I've, I've been able to eliminate so much of my excess labor because of those cages. It was worth the money up front because it saves me on the back end with the amount of time that I can go do something else. And I think a lot of people really kind of foobar in that thought process of like, Oh, I don't want to spend 3,500 bucks on a rack. But then like Chris said, how many can you fit in that rack? And you divide it by the quantity, and that's how many enclosures you get per rack, right? It's like 125 bucks per cage. It's pretty good. Uh, you know, if you're doing like a 0824, the FB80, or the FB70 tub. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people need to realize that you get out what you put in, just like in the quality of morphs and the lineage of the animal, that quality in caging, I think, is imperative too. And, of course, if, if you like display caging, you know, we're not saying go one way or another. I never would. I always... Tell people to do what they like, what makes them happy, right? If they want to put that effort into clean reach-ins, go for it, man. There's some really killer setups I've seen out, out there. And, you know, I would personally love to have 500, like, Vision T8s on a huge wall in my house and be able to stare at that with a sofa. But in reality, I just I couldn't care for it. It would take yeah. me way too long, you know, maintenance-wise. I think one yeah. thing that people miss too is, you know, they'll go out, they have no problem spending $5,000 on a high-end morph and they want to keep it as cheap as possible and they throw right. it in a, in a tub with a clip-on lid and a heat pad on a cheap $20 thermostat off of Amazon and then when that thermostat f fries their animal, they're like, oh. I don't know what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, well, and, well and, and of course then they try and pass the buck and be like, oh, the animal is disfunct from whatever, whoever, and yada, yada, and yeah, I mean, that that that's something that you see sometimes you know it's it's an unfortunate reality that people will spend money on you know i i, I remember seeing like five years ago there was a scoria 
and the scoria was kept inside a glass aquarium you know yep. a fish tank literally with astroturf on the bottom i'm not even shitting you and it had like a heat rock in there and and i mean this is like a legitimate scoria you know and back back then five six years ago very rare still and somebody paid yeah, I mean, twenty thousand dollars for this animal to stick it in a fish keep tank. it in an aquarium yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean you, you know when petco does they're like a dollar a gallon type deal that's kind of what happened you know they're like oh i'll, I'll go buy 20 long for 20 bucks get some master turf at home depot for four dollars and then a heat rock from Amazon for 12 bucks or whatever it is. And then I'll, I'll put it on there and I'll put my excess weights from my dumbbell on the top to keep the snake in. I mean, it makes total sense, right? Or your school books. Yep. Yeah, or your school book. Or, or, I mean, your dirty underwear. I don't know what people are using, yeah. but, you know, it, it's, it, it is kind of funny sometimes. So, Chris, what do you see as the future of the hobby? Um, or at the very least, what the future that you would like to see the hobby move towards? Um, more professionalism, you know, uh, I, I like to see people take things seriously and that, you know, you know, in providing care for their animals, whether it is again, those, uh, in depth, you know, set up displays, you know, we're not just talking about okay. how you keep the animals too, but also just like what kind of projects they do and why and how people behave and interact with each other. Um, you know, people doing research and respecting knowledge and, sharing that information, not somebody that's hiding trade secrets at home and doesn't want to help other people be successful, um, not having breeders just BS and talk down on each other. Also not having breeders that are just putting any two animals together just to reproduce more animals without any care or foresight into the future. And one thing that's real a big issue now, obviously in boas and in pythons and numerous different examples we've got all these viruses out there that people are just ignoring or continue to breed or sell sick animals and spread things and you know there was a comment i saw recently you know somebody mentioned with the the coronavirus he said it's it's very evident that all you snake people that say you quarantine clearly don't quarantine <laughs> oh, no, and it's, it's just you know the the, sh the shortcuts that people take and care like end of the day we are responsible for these animals and i want to see people actually realize that and care about the life that they're responsible for yeah my, my favorite is hey let me show you how i quarantine with these animals i just got at this expo in my main room that's sitting right behind me makes total sense right yeah well you know <laughs> what you know what's funny man i'm glad you guys mentioned that because uh Proper quarantine has saved my ass multiple times, but it did recently. I, I uh, ended up buying a, uh, uh, a sub-adult uh, female super raptor from a well-known breeder uh, about a year and a half ago. And luckily, you know, I, I have a dedicated quarantine area away from my main collection. Uh, within three months, uh, this snake that was quarantined by herself ended up uh, showing signs of uh, arena virus. And uh, about a month after that, that thing ended up passing. So I thank God for proper quarantine or else that would potentially killed off my entire collection. You know what I mean? Well, and, and then when people are thinking quarantine, like in reality, you need to think about minimal standards, right? And at minimum, I recommend people do a three-month quarantine. You know, a lot of people when I ship, especially if I'm not familiar with you as, an, as a buyer, you know, if I don't know you as a friend, I'll ship a quarantine request, meaning please quarantine this animal for the safety of yours, but also for the safety of the one that I'm sending you. Cause I don't know what you got in your collection. Right. Yeah, and so I was like, here's why you should quarantine. Here's what I do. And here's what I recommend. Minimum three months. Zoological standard is six months in that yeah. time. 
where people foobar is they'll have quote unquote a quarantine area and so say they'll be three months into the process of quarantine they're like oh man i got to get this snake then they buy another snake and they take that snake and they plop it in a tub and then they throw it in the quarantine they're like oh yeah it's in quarantine sweet well what you did is you just reset the ticker you reset the clock on that first snake that snake now needs to be put back to zero because now you re you introduced it to another snake you can't quarantine you know at like a dedicated quarantine where you keep introducing new animals into that quarantine and so people i think have really taken a step back in kind of slowing down like be patient quarantine the animals just make sure they're healthy but it's all it's not just to protect the your current stuff but the current animal that you just received you know it, it's all about the care like chris said we provide for these animals strictly they depend on us what is our level of care for these animals and how do we dictate the we're gonna like be an appropriate keeper you know don't half-ass this stuff it it never pans out well it never does like you half-ass you're gonna be gone real quick i promise yeah. And one of the things that I personally tend to advocate is something that I actually got from my medical profession, which is like a step down process. Right. So, like, for example, if somebody were to get sick with a particular virus. OK. And they wound up in the in the ICU with, oh, let's say uh, pneumonia. OK. Once that person kind of recovers, gets off of a, a, a ventilator, you're not necessarily going to say, oh, great job. Go ahead and go home. You would now shift them down out of the ICU into an inpatient setting, right? They would stay there for a set amount of time. And then once they've made improvements at that level, then eventually you would release them at that point when they go home. And when they go home, there's a series of follow-ups and things that need to happen. I kind of do the same thing with my animals. So I have kind of my initial quarantine period for brand new arrivals. And usually after, on average, four to six months, they move to kind of a level two quarantine, which is where I'll usually keep them another three months, right? Before they eventually join my collection and i think doing that has saved my butt multiple times oh yeah well well and, and just even like uh parasites you know like mites things like that it could really if any of us were to get mites in our main collection how devastating would that be not only for the risk of the health of the animals but the amount of time that would be needed to deal with the situation you know i i always advocate for a lack of pesticides if at all possible yeah and that's that's a that's a big one, you know. That's I wanted to get into that with you know some of my procedures and things that I do. So I'll let you finish up what you were going to say there, Tom. Oh yeah, I was just going to say like you know if if you were to introduce mites into your main collection, now you're inundating your entire collection with a pesticide of some form to eliminate what could have been prevented to begin with if you just had quarantined. Whereas you're needing to treat now 100 animals when all you would have had to do if you quarantined properly is treat one. One, one at risk of pesticide exposure is much better statistically than 100, you know? So common sense would dictate be a little more careful. So you could take over, Chris, and say what you're going to say. Yep. So whenever I, um, whenever I take my snakes to shows, the f few times that I do do that, <clears throat> any babies that left my uh, main snake room and go to a show never go back into that snake room. Um, they are put in separate quarantine uh, to make sure that you know that nothing got picked up from the show um, but more so you know they're just never reintroduced back into the collection so I actually have you know three areas for for animals so the ones that went to a show that's where they go back to if they if they didn't sell the show the animals that are actually acquisition quarantine and then my main collection itself that's a, that's a smart the way big, of doing it yeah. the big thing that 
people miss too is there's so much preventative use of pesticides which results in having pesticide resistant mites and people are also not factoring in the long-term damage on the animals i mean pesticide exposure um, whether it's uh, permethrin and or which is you know preventamite or whatever thing you bought from nix walmart yeah. or uh, home depot yeah good night spray nix um, any of those lice sprays or bed bug sprays those all have the same active ingredient or people using no pest strips with dichlorvos the damage that those chemicals do on uh, neurological impacts as well as or just outright poisoning and killing the animal or long-term um, shortening of the lifespan or their overall fecundity and ability to breed and produce viable healthy litters People aren't realizing this, you know, all these breeders that run and have, you know, high slug counts and a lot of stillborns, their babies born early and females dying after two, three litters, you know, they're wondering why or accepting those as normal practices and not realizing, no, it's everything that the animal's been exposed to. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the rampant use of pesticide in the hobby, and, and what I see, I see a lot of people doing this preventative exposure. Like, oh, well, I just want to treat just in case. It's like, well, if your practices are leaving that in the back of your mind of like just in case, you probably should change your practices, right? Don't go to an expo and then go waddling into your main collection after you're going around, you know, a thousand other people with all these tables and animals at expos and go walking in there and thinking you're not going to get mites. You know, I've been to Tinley three times in October. Uh, I always go to that October one. And every single time I've gone to that show, you know, we have our own little crews and stuff that we hang out with. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, so-and-so saw this table over here with mites crawling around. And it's like, okay, I mean, you know they're going to be there. It's just who has them, right? Somebody's going to have them. Everything that's there is potentially at risk. So if you go to a show, you can potentially bring that into your collection. So if you go to an expo, you go home, you declothe outside, you freaking go in, you take a hot shower, and you clean up, and you make sure that you are as careful as possible to not expose something to your main collection. So then what you have people doing now is they're, well, I'll preventative treat. I'll put in all these no-pest strips, and I'll just leave them in there, you know, for God knows how long. I mean, dichlorovos is super, super toxic. You know, it, it degrades neuronal pathways in the brain, which is why it causes neurological disorders. Uh, myelin fibers it does all sorts of really bad things to your body and it does the same thing to the snake because the snake's biology is not vastly different than humans it, it creates a higher propensity for pancreatic cancer in humans so not only are they inundating the animals with this pesticide they're inundating themselves and a very popular breeder or keeper that we we know diem she actually had poisoned himself with no pest strip using mm. it when they got mites. I mean, I mean, legitimately, like ER visit style, you know, chronic bloody noses, chronic migraines, um, like like a sore throat, chronic sore throat, like all this weird stuff had come up because of this no no pest strip use. And then you have the people that are like, oh, I'll just treat the aspen once every week. I'll just spray it down and put the snake back in. But why? If you're not getting mites, there's no need. The if you if you're getting your aspen or your bedding from a place that does not keep reptiles meaning like Chewy.com or Pet360 directly to Harland or like a feed store and you direct order from, you know, the, the manufacturers, you're not going to get mites. Now, if you go to Petco or you go to PetSmart or you go to these other places that keep reptiles, yeah, you're at risk for it. You know, Or, just, or buy, buy substrate at a show. Buy right. su substrate at a show. I mean, it makes total sense, right? Let's, well, let's honestly, that's the, that's 
the last time I had mites, which was probably around maybe four years ago, I think they I got picked up at the, they they picked up on the show. I I didn't buy any animals, never had mites. Came back and I think one of my kids came into the snake room because they had bought a block of uh, of cocoa bedding for one of the, for uh, one of their animals, right? For one yeah. of the lizards, and magically, two days or not not even two days, I would say maybe maybe five days later, that rack all of a sudden had mites. Boom. The good thing yeah. is I was able to catch on it. Like when there was like the lo- I, I started noticing like two of the boas that were near there sitting, you know, soaking for extended periods. And yeah. I went and I looked, and I saw a mite on its nose, and boop, entire rat came out of the room. Immediately had to double-check every everybody. One of the things I do do, and I do believe, is, you know, you could preventively treat some animals with something as simple as some soaking in water. You know what I mean? Some people yeah, yeah. So, yes. So, 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 soak a new acquisition in water absolutely makes sense, you know. Um, oh, other, and that hydrates them, too. That, I mean, so it, like. I use cocoa substrate for for my stuff now, yeah. and I take all those blocks and I freeze them. Ooh, you know, that's so I'm I just you, know, you have these giant chest freezers full of rats and throw some coconut in there too. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually really smart, man. Yeah, but so, but it's better than it's better than using a pesticide because you can just use a natural temperature gradient. Like if you want, if you live in a hot climate, like you, Carlos, like down in Arizona, just go throw it out in the sun. You know, because let it, it bake be, in the bag. Yeah, yeah be, because it's going to be inside that bag too. You're creating an interior temperature that is far harder, hotter than just your ambient out exterior, right? So you let it bake in there, throw it in the freezer, you'll be good to go. It's it's better than say breaking it up and you know screening it out or whatever, and then spraying it with a bunch of pesticide and then throwing your snake back on it. Because yeah. like like when I've when I have a mite treatment that I've had to do in the past, it's always been the Nick style. And the way I've justified Nick's is because I was like, well, technically this is like infant lice shampoo. So if it's been FDA approved to be used on infants, the likelihood that it's going to harm a snake versus something strong like, say, no pestrip, which is proven to kill people, right? Nick's, in my experience, I've never had an ill effect. Um, at this point, I just prevent new acquisitions so i don't have to worry about it at all because the last two that i've gotten were sent to me with mites yeah shout, shout out to shane kinney <laughs> thanks dude that was great one of the things that we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break and then um chris if you're uh open to it when we come back i want you to kind of talk a little bit about uh how you essentially would recommend people nail their setup down so that they are set up the best way possible sure thing. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, so now we are going to talk a little bit about what it takes to really nail your setup to make sure that you have the best possible setup for your animals, not only for their health, but also to kind of improve your breeding success. So um, one of the toughest calls for a lot of people that have been shifting from like, you know, that beginner hobbyist, uh, gla- quote unquote, glass aquarium hobbyist uh, into kind of a breeder mode where you want to keep multiple animals and you've started to realize that maybe you have to start going down the pathway of racks um, is really deciding whether you go out and you get some cheap racks or you spend some money on really having a really good setup and and that for a lot of people seems a little bit crazy that they would go out and spend 
you know, anywhere from $2,000 to $4,000 on a rack system. Um, but, you know, they might see this as an unnecessary expense, but really having the right caging can actually be one of the most cost-saving things that you could potentially do for your collection in the long run. So Chris, tell us a little bit about the importance of having the right setup for a large collection. So put in perspective, I've completely replaced everything four times over the past, since 2003. So um, certainly wow. put a lot of uh, credit, you know, emphasis on you know what's available and what's the best out there so i, I spoke a little bit about that before um you know one thing you want to obviously come out with and I'm, is, this isn't just a, a feel-good thing there's many ways to do things and many things that are going to work for different people um one thing that a lot of people aren't taking into consideration is where in the country they live and how their house is heated or cooled um so you know somebody down in florida can get an exoterra and if it's got a big enough you know uh, one of the glass terrariums, if if it's sized right for the animal, stick it in there and have no problem with humidity and heat. But you put that same animal in that same setup up here in Pennsylvania, it's not going to work. Um, so figuring out those different nuances. The, the big thing that I always look at is I want consistency in products and I want things to be readily available. Um, if something breaks or something needs replaced, if you have a tub break, you know, are you going to be able to go to the store and buy that same tub or is the manufacturer going to discontinue it? Uh, if you have a, you know, a part of your cage or rack break, are you going to be able to go to the manufacturer and get a replacement or are you going to have to scrap the whole thing? Or are you going to have duct tape and glue on it to piece it back together? The material side is, is the next piece of that. So, you know, what are these cages or racks made out of? You know, are they put together with, um, cheap materials or are they put together with high-end materials and a lot of things people don't really know the difference of what those materials are you know so my background being an engineering student whenever I was getting started with this was very much on the material science aspect of things different plastics composition how they um, you know different properties of them how they are to clean and how that came into use with reptile caging so everybody's familiar with PVC cages um, biggest issue that I have with PVC is most PVC that's used uh, in the reptile world now is a extruded PVC or foam core PVC or PVC-X. Those often have not only a porous core, but a porous surface. And evidence of this is difficult to see in a lot of cases because people are using black cages that hide things. But if you get certain cages in white plastics, and you're seeing, you know, you had newspaper down there and a water bowl, the snake pooped in the corner, and you went and rolled it up, and now there's a brown stain in the corner. That actually happens on a lot of these PVC products. The black ones, you'll see it under high-intensity LED or um, black lights, but without that high-intensity light, you would never see it. You could bleach the cage. That stain's never going to disappear. And things like that, those are products that you shouldn't use and you know, they may have been acceptable at one point when we had fewer options, but today I'd consider those just garbage. And it's a big issue for me because I look at it saying, well, the person that's manufacturing these is wasting raw materials. They're wasting natural resources. You know, they're just filling a landfill for no reason. <clears throat> the, um, there are PVC options that are good. Uh, one that I've always been supportive of is animal plastics. They're, um, just because, again, I, I'm familiar with it. I've used them. Um, the 
surface of the plastic is smooth. It's non-porous. I've never, I never had any of those stained. I use white animal plastics cages. Uh, would have issues around um, doorway openings with that raw cut edge, um, that staining, and sanding it down or using uh, magic erasers, which if anybody doesn't know, they're just uh, melamine uh, sponges. Buy them on Amazon, like for a hundred for a dollar, <laughs> instead of paying the prices at the grocery store. Um, but uh, they could still be cleaned and didn't have those issues. Next level up were high-density polyethylene. High-density polyethylene is a food-grade plastic. It's a plastic cutting board. Um, it's going to be made from that. Milk drugs are made out of it. Those are the two main things that everybody's going to encounter in their day-to-day -day life. Unfortunately, right now, there's not really any uh, manufacturers doing high-density polyethylene in cages except for Vision. And then there's showcase cages, which also uses a, a molded cage much like Vision, but has a more decorative front, and they do a couple different colors. Uh, Freedom Breeder, with their plastic tubs, everything that's smaller than their 66 dash series, those are all made out of high-density polyethylene. Um, another material is polypropylene. Polypropylene is a lot like high-density polyethylene, except that it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's more rigid, so there is you know, some structural benefits to it, but it's more prone to cracking. Um, where high-density polyethylene is a little bit softer and more flexible, so it's not necessarily going to have as much structural integrity. And high-density polyethylene, you know, so like certain tubs, scrubbing them out could scratch them. Polypropylene might hold up a little bit better for that. Then you've got ABS. Um, ABS plastic is very hard. Uh, in black, seems to be more stable. I don't know if it's, again, just the color or if there's any additives in it. But most white um, ABS is not UV stable. So over time, um, high heat exposure, certain UV light, it can discolor. Uh, you'll see that with people that had old Neodisha cages. You know, they came in an almond color, but then they're more yellowed. Or the older um, Freedom Breeder racks that had white drawers and that have turned yellow over time. Um, even some ARS stuff that I've seen down in uh, keepers in Florida that are getting a lot of sun baking through the, their windows. The, the big gray tubs are made out of ABS um, on the, the 80, the 85, and their, their um, 9706 on their giant rack. Some of those have turned yellow over time. Uh, the next plastic is high-impact polystyrene, which is used by bars, and those are distributed by PM Herps and JPM Reptilia. That's also a solid core, smooth surface plastic that's completely disinfectable, but again, can yellow over time. Um, exposure to uh, vinegar will actually, and I'm sorry, ammonia, not vinegar, ammonia will discolor that. So knowing those differences on both the aesthetic aspects as well as the ability to last a long time and how you're going to clean it, I think really fit into picking out what makes the most sense. And then, you know, seeing, okay, now that I know these materials, I got to look for a manufacturer and then I got to see what options are available that my animals needs. Obviously, you need to make sure there's a big enough cage, you know. It might be that you have to go with a manufacturer that you otherwise would have opted out of for a smaller snake if you've got a big retic that only, there's only a few manufacturers that make cages big enough for them. It is what it is. Um, so th that, that's, that's a big piece of things without, you know, I, you know, I threw out some, some names around some companies, but it's more just giving that info for somebody to take it and do the research and and try to piece those things together and ask questions. And I always see people asking white or, or black plastic, and they're like, oh, I like black because it, it's, uh, it's, it's cleaner. 
what, what they mean is it doesn't show that it's dirty. And I'm like, well, you know, we should be caring about these animals and providing a clean environment for them. And, Dude, I'm glad you well, said. And, you know, I'm glad. You and said and that. that's like that's like seeing some of the the old school gray and and colored ones that you know from back in the early 2000s or 90s, and like you look inside and they're just trashed on the inside, yes. and there's no way to get rid of it. And as someone who is like a clean freak, technically you can sanitize it within reason, and technically it can be clean surface wise antigen wise or bacteria wise or whatever but then it just looks absolutely horrible and you, you know urates especially on boas are notoriously difficult if they're not cleaned quickly which is difficult if you keep like a like a bedded substrate like aspen you can't just see them all because sometimes they'll spot urate and then do like a big one right you'll get the big one spot clean whatever that area put new aspen in next week you'll go to the front and you're like, oh, there's another one. If you don't get on it quick, that stuff is hard to get out. If you have a surface that absorbs it and then causes permanent staining, as a keeper, man, I would lose my damn mind. I, I just, I couldn't, I'm so anal about it. Like I couldn't stand not being able to get rid of it. That's a big plus for high density polyethylene is nothing sticks to it. Um, polypropylene is choice number two. Um, and then the, the polystyrene is choice number three. You know, PVC is the, is the hardest one to clean or, or yeah. yes. And, um, you know, that, I mean, Thomas and I have very similar, uh, regimens on, on cleaning. I think the primary difference is I use F10, he uses chlorhexidine. Right. Um, but we both, uh, I you use know, spit. <laughs> we, both spit use those, we both use those cleaners, <laughs> you know, spray, I, I, I spray in F10, let it soak, do its thing. Um, I'll wipe it out and, uh, you know, I'll just, I'll so, do so, wipe so over with everything. I wipe let's over Let's talk with everything. about that. Yeah. Let's talk about that real quick, Chris. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, uh, how you let it soak, and Carlos being in the medical profession, um, the the time of effectiveness. This is something that a lot of people don't understand when you're talking path pathogenic microorganisms. The time right. of effectiveness is the amount of time that needs to be allotted for a chemical or cleaner to have an effective negating ability for these organisms, right? So if you spray it on there and you immediately wipe it off, you have manually, it's almost like hand washing, manually removed whatever pathogen or microorganism or material that you're trying to get off. But you're not effectively sanitizing the surface because you're not, you're not allowing enough time for that cleaner to be effective. And so I think as, as new keepers, they also need to understand that just because you spray and wipe doesn't mean that it's necessarily sanitized allowing it the ability to soak and become effective against the pathogens or microorganisms is a super important aspect too that people need to really pay attention to. Absolutely. Yeah. So like F10, um, you know, at a 250 to one concentration, uh, it's got a 15 minute timeline that it has to sit there. So it's not going right. to all evaporate, but you've got to let it sit. So, you know, you've got a couple of tubs or even if you just got one, spray it down, let it sit there, um, do its thing. So I do that for the initial then I'll just, if I need to spray more, I'll spray it again just to wipe it out. Uh, if there's, you know, I'm using cocoa and it's kind of a dusty substrate. So wiping out any excess or just to go over the outside of the tub, I'll wipe it down with a Lysol wipe. Now, after I do that, then I'm going to go through and F10 it again. Now, this is your spray it and wipe it. Um, but that's just to, to make sure it's, you know, visually spotless. And then the final step that I do is, uh, uh, which is a thing that I got from Tom, is I will steam clean it also. 
So now steam, you know, that last step under that high heat is going to kill anything else and make sure that it's spotless. Plus you're st steaming it with, uh, with distilled water. There's no spots. It's nice right. and clean. You know, if, if I'm say I am upgrading an animal from uh, a baby wreck to uh, a juvenile or from juvenile to an adult enclosure, or, or I sold one and now this enclosure is going to use something else. It's important. You know, the, the ARS and Freedom Breeder X I use have the plastic panels to pull out, disinfect those. I'm steam cleaning the tracks, you know, make sure that everything is completely sterile so there's zero cross-contamination between animals. Because that's another thing that we're missing, you know, you can do all the right things with quarantine. You can do all the right things um, with your, your husbandry and care, but there might be something that this animal has that you don't know, and it could live with it, but then now another animal gets exposed to it and the other animal's dead. Right. So, um, besides, uh, the cleaning items, um, one of the other things that I know you're pretty passionate about is, uh, the utilization, the proper utilization of uh, thermostats within each rack. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. So that, um, like many things goes back to my original keeping of localities. So whenever I first started, you know, I, I have a stack of, um, of five cages and I have a Sonoran boa in one, I have a Costa Rican boa in one, I have a Nicaraguan boa in one, I have a Bolivian boa in one, and I have a Colombian boa in one. Those all have different temperature requirements. Those all might be different ages. I might be breeding one, not the other. I might have two breeding and one ovulates before the other. All those things that I just presented, it's impossible to provide accurately for your animal without having independent controls on each one of those cages. If I had a single thermostat on everything, and I was cooling for breeding. Well, now the, you know, say you had f five animals in a stack of cages. Now your other three that aren't breeding are going to be cold. Might be okay to cycle them. They might be adults that you want to cycle anyway. But or that cooling temperature might be the wrong temperature for them. For example, Sonoran boas that I spoke to earlier, they have to be kept cooler to get them to breed. A very well-known breeder, uh, whenever it was making double hets for a double homozygous leopard crossed to a, a Colombian boa morph, lost his Colombian male. Uh, whenever he did that, because the temperature had to be so cold to get the leopard to be receptive that it gave the Colombian a respiratory infection. Hmm. So, you know, if, if I've got, I have a small collection and I have, you know, different, those different animals, I need to have those separate thermostats so I can say, okay, well, this female ovulated in July, or I'm sorry, January, she's going to need the heat uh, cranked back up to give her a 90 degree hotspot. This female, they're still breeding. I still want to have that 10 degree night trap at night. So I don't want to do that yet have that separate thermostat, it saves you. The yeah. next point was based off of just energy usage and then with it, fire safety. So if you have a thermostat, it's a mechanical device. If it fails, what's at risk? If one thermostat is controlling one cage and one thermostat fails, there's one animal that's potentially at risk. If one thermostat is, is controlling a 30-bin CB70 rack and it fails, there are 30 animals at risk. And, and we know of people who have, you know, even even of recent times, had issues to where if they had run a series like how Chris does, they would not have lost 20 or 30 animals from one faulty setup. You know, no, and, but... and when, when, you, when you look at the cumulative cost of running a per-level thermostat, yes, there is a cost associated if you have, you know, 15 levels on the Freedom Breeder 1575, technically that's... 15 ports that you would need to have individual setups on, right? 
But if you only have one and you cook 15 levels of 75 total animals, how much would that have actually cost you? Well, I'm, I'm somebody that, that got directly affected by that because I actually had a thermostat from a well-known manufacturer have a uh, probe issue, and it ended up cooking a couple of animals in a level. So now what I've had to do is I've uh, actually had to build some redundancy into those systems to prevent that right. from ever happening again. And I ended up losing, honestly, it, had I spent the money on multiple thermostats per rack, which is what I currently have now, right? Had I spent that initially, I would have saved myself a $30,000 loss, which is essentially what the males that ended up getting cooked in, in those levels ended up costing me, you know? Right. And, and then, yeah, except, you know, like in, down, in down the line, you would have saved their ability to breed and produce. Oh, dude, I don't even want to think sure. about how much potential <laughs> I had lost just in those males with their productive reproductive ability, you know? Yeah. So, so like right now, I'm running 92 different thermostat probes through all of my stuff. Wow. And that was... Uh, that was no. less than eight, I got 93. It's, it's less than $8,000 <laughs> for all those thermostats. And you look at a collection that's worth, you know, half a million dollars, it's worth an $8,000 investment to take care of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, man. even absolutely. if you're not looking at it from that standpoint, so Tom was mentioning, you know, 15 on, on a baby rack. I recently put a post up on Instagram showing the side of my one of my baby racks with a bunch of Herbstead Easy 2s zip tied to it. And so I have seven thermostats on there. Each thermostat has two probes, one probe per level. Those thermostats are $120 a piece. That means $60 per line. So that was a three-wide baby bin, baby rack, not one of the five-wides. So that works out to $20 per tub. If you're telling me that your baby isn't worth a $20 investment to keep it safely and accurately, I, then I don't want you touching animals. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you now, probably, you I probably shouldn't this. even be keeping yeah. You know, I, I don't want to sound like, um, you know, a Nazi on this because a lot of people are like, you know, oh, that, you know, it's nice to do, but it's excessive. You know what? You may view it as excessive. I think it's a worthwhile cost. Again, like I said at the beginning, there's, there's different ways to do things. It's not the only way. Can you keep them with, with one? Sure. But given the risks associated, given how things work, I think it's a, a worthwhile endeavor. But, no, I, you I think you're absolutely right, man, because I, I'll tell you what. One of the things that I think sometimes may be misconstrued by people that may listen to the show is thinking that although we talk a lot about the business side, you know what I mean? These animals are, are animals and they're our pets, right? And we right. have a, a inherent responsibility to keep them safe and keep them protected, right? So when you lose so, animals, it's not that you're just losing potential profits. You're losing living things that, you know, matter to you. Like, I'm not, well, even, the I'm not even gonna lie. When, when I lost those males, dude, I literally fell to my knees and I cried. And the money was the last thing on my mind at that right. moment. It was the animals. Like, so, like, you know, look, that, that one baby wreck right now. So I've got um, rough-skilled sandboas, Kenyan sandboas, the, the Russian sandboas. I've got a uh, Colombian rainbow boa, some boa constrictors, um, and water pythons in there. They also don't all have the same temperature requirements. Correct. So I yep. need to be able to have those separate lines so I can give them that, that separate temperature. I mean, that's, so I, given, you know, bulk of the reasons there, but, you know, I think with, you know, it's also, I've, I've proven it to myself with my breeding success, you know, especially with the leopards early on, people weren't getting them to breed. And one of the issues was the temperatures. And after I shared this little secret to so many people, they were able to get their leopards to breed. Yeah. You know, it's just, hey, now you can control that girl at a lower temp than the one above her that's a, a different locality. 
Now, let me ask you something. Do you keep any sort of uh, ambient room temperature as a baseline? Uh, yes. Okay. But it's fairly low. Um, Got it. I have uh, so it's sixty nine. <laughs> I have a. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, seventy two is my is my minimum baseline. My room temperature is usually about seventy five. But I have um, I have a, a secondary heating system um, that kicks on at seventy two. Yeah, same. And um, that one is controlled by a, a Wi Fi uh, thermostat that's tied into my um, smart home system, so I can pull up my phone whenever I'm intimely at a show and check the room temperature and make sure everything's all all good and kosher. Yeah, I'm with you too, man. I actually uh, ended up doing that about three years ago, man, and it gives me so much peace of mind when I'm, out, I'm away from my house that I can check my temperature remotely and I can check, obviously, my humidity remotely too. You right. know what I mean? So, so with these topics, I do want to talk like about like differences of some of the thermostats that people aren't really aware yeah, of too. It, so, you know, the, the primary things we have are we have on-off thermostats and proportional thermostats. Now, on-off thermostats are working off a mechanical relay. That's a switch, just like your light switch. Goes on, goes off. Things are only designed to go on and off so many times. Now that so many times may be millions. Some of those might be a thousand. Cheaper thermostats are cheaper for a reason. They're going to fail sooner. It's just how the parts are, are made. Um, so you can get high, good thermostats that are on-off that are much safer than a cheap one. That on-off piece, that, is, that mechanical relay, over time, when those components wear out, that can arc. That arc can weld that switch open. And that's where you have a full current blast that ends up cooking animals. I think almost every you know, modern reptile keeper that's using belly heat or radiant heat panels or ceramic heat emitters, the heating devices that are attached to their cages or racks have the ability to reach temperatures well in excess of what they need and easily can kill the animal. Absolutely. And if that thermostat's failure becomes on, you're done for. Yeah. yeah no, With you that, you know, you also have the fire risk. So... That's my, you know, application for proportional. Now, um, I, I've used uh, the old Helix thermostats. I've used Herbstat, um, Ecozone Vivarium, which is no longer a business, and Freedom Breeder thermostats. Um, I've all, used them all well, use them all currently. They all have pluses and minuses and additional features. I know the most about Herbstats, uh, but again, you know, just sharing those other ones, they're certainly not the only one out there. You know, the Herbstats, they use a solid-state uh, component called a Triac, to regulate the current, and if that triac fails, there is a mechanical relay in there that'll switch off. But so again, you know, we're saying, well, hey, that mechanical relay you said was the cheaper component, so why would I want that as a backup? Well, again, it was a bad component because it can only switch on and off so many times. If its job is to switch off one time as a shutoff, it's going to do its job. So if a triac fails, which I've never had one fail in any of my herp stats, and I've been using them since 2004, then that would come into play. Um, the other uh, aspect with proportional thermostats, you have two different types. You have dimming and pulse proportional. Now, if you pull up a manual for uh, Herbstat, which I was actually going through a new one today, um, it lists right in there, you know, dimming is recommended unless you have metal racks, then to use pulse, but not to use pulse on plastic racks or plastic caging. The pulse proportional I, is essentially doing a quick on-off. I don't know beyond that exactly how it's working in the component piece of it but the dimming proportional is regulating the current going to the device and that's what I use and personally recommend so now the negative is using dimming setting on a herpstat on a metal rack 
those heat panels will often buzz. I don't have the electrical what knowledge do you, what to explain do you mean why. Buzz? Oh. There's an audible hum. Hmm. To okay, the heat I, panel. Gotcha. I I can't. I, I remember reaching out to Dion at Spider Exotics one, or Spider Robotics one time and asking why. I don't recall the reason, but essentially it was there was no danger there. It was just you know that's the thing that happens and you can either deal with it or you can switch it to pulse. Um, in my use with dimming, so I'll, I'll, I'll set up a heat panel, you know, put the probe on it, turn it on. Uh, it needs to get to 92 to reach a, a 90 degree hotspot in the tub. Perfect. I'm looking at the thermostat and it says it needs 20% power to reach that 90 degree temperature. Perfect. That means that there's no reason for it to ever go above, uh, you know, 50%. So instead of having the ability for that thermostat to kick up to 100%, I can go in there. I know this is a feature on the 4 and the 6. I don't know about the other models because I don't use them. And the, uh, the new Wi-Fi um, Herbstat 2, they have a max power setting. So I can go in there and say, this line can never go above 50%. Now, in the case of a power outage, um, everything's kicking on at once. The full power delivery, it's only going to get 50% power. It's doing a couple of things. One, it's safer for the animal because you're getting that ramp up and smoother temperature. The bigger thing, though, is, is two components. One, on the heat panel itself, and two, just from the, the electric surge and safety of your house. So if that's only pulling 50% power, that's obviously a lot safer than having a bunch of things pulling twice as much power and potentially overloading circuits and blowing fuses and causing other issues. The other aspect... All of the heat elements that we use are resistive-based heaters. Resistors over lengths of distance uh, get weaker. Um, there's inconsistencies in them as well. At full power, uh, full current delivery, they are going to fail sooner. So by using dimming thermostats, you're also prolonging the life of that heating element by using separate probes things you're getting more accurate temperatures because you know the even if you have the same heat panel on every level of a, of a 30 bin cb70 rack there are actually going to be differences in how that heat is delivering power and if you don't have that separate probe you're not going to account for those little minute differences now they might be small you know it might be an aspect of well this this panel here you know there's there's a spot over here where that's you know, I run the temp gun across and it's going to be, um, you know, 71.5 and this one's 72 over here. But, you know, when you go further, now you're going to find like this spot over here is only 88. Um, so the other aspect with all that and coming with the 50% the thing is just one thing that I've been looking, meaning to do a write-up on. And again, you know, I'm not an electrician, but, you know, no, knowing some of this knowledge is uh, beneficial is people need to understand how to deal with the, the power loads that they're um setting up. So you get the right cages, you get quality heat elements, you get quality thermostats, but you can still overload circuits and create a fire hazard. And, you know, so b basic math, voltage times amperage equals wattage. So whether you have a 15 amp or 20 amp circuit in your house, um, calculate how, how much wattage that can support and make sure that your heat panels, the sum total at full power isn't going to exceed them. And then with that, you know, so in my circumstance, what I always do as a safety thing that I've talked to some electricians on is so on a, um, on a, on a line without doing the math in front of me, you know, there, there's X amount of wattage that a 15 amp circuit can hold. I'm going to set a cap for 80% of that. So that means I'm going to go to ARS and Freedom Breeder, ask them how much wattage is in each of these heat panels. I'm going to add them all together and say, okay, if they were plugged into the wall straight, 
how much is this going to add up to? I'm going to make sure that I'm not using more than 80% of the uh, power supply for that power line. And then after that, I'm going to put a thermostat on it with a 50% limiter. So really, at full blast, of everything kicking on at once, and full power draw, I'm not actually drawing more than 40%, and I'm not at risk of blowing any fuses and things shorting out and fire. Hey, Thomas, do you use any sort of limiter? Well, I, think. I think I think talking to him in the past, like he has a number of uh, dedicated lines and has, has an overabundance of electric supply for his facility. Okay, got it. Okay, so um, any other tips and tricks you would provide somebody who is uh, kind of getting ready to upgrade their equipment or really is looking for some direction? Um, maybe what do you feel is the most important thing? Um providing for the animal's needs. <laughs> you know, you got to make sure that you have enough space in there that what you're... Okay, actually, you know what? There's a big one. Ventilation. Ooh, this is... That's actually a really good one. Air circulation. Yeah. People all the time, you know, okay, so you have the people to say, oh, I got an aquarium. Oh, you can fix it by covering up the, the vent holes. As soon as you did that, you've just, you've created a terrible environment. You need to have air circulation to avoid respiratory issues. And people that are creating high humidity through air stagnation are creating a breeding ground for bacteria. Yes, sir. I think both of you guys can comment from Absolutely. that from a much more, you know, medical background than I can. And you know, I said, the number one thing to look at is that if, now, now if you do a substrate change and you're putting in wet cocoa and there's, you know, condensation on the tub for a day, that's one thing. But if on a regular basis you go down and there's condensation on the windows of your cage or the sides of your tub, you don't have enough ventilation. I think that's a that I think that's a really great rule of thumb that people can start utilizing right there. Um, well, well, and another another yeah, cool thing that co couples with that is if you place your fans appropriately as well, you reduce the amount of ambient difference between high and low. So that's another thing that couples in with Chris's thermostat setup is as hot air rises, the uh, closures higher, typically warmer. But like in my facility, I have four industrial 20-inch uh, fans that blow directly down, circulating the air down. Then I run two, or I run three germ guardians, three humidifiers, and also a eight-inch um, carbon recirc filter, like what they use for like grow ops, um, you know, with a recycled carbon on the inside. Yeah. And um, you know, coupled with that amount of airflow you can really level out your temperatures from the low end of the cage, the bottom rack level to the top. And I mean, I'm, I'm almost seven and a half feet high on my highest level. And if I take like one of my, I have Taylor um, hydrometer and thermostat um, sensors placed all around my room so I can get various readings from all locations. If I take one and put it on the top of the rack and I put one on the very bottom of the rack, let it sit so it levels out to whatever the current temperature is. Uh, I have less than a one degree change over that seven and a half foot distance from top to bottom. But the majority of that is because of the amount of airflow that I'm pushing down. And then that just creates new airflow, you know, and pulls moisture out of the enclosures. Because I run an air conditioner too, which kicks a lot of humidity out of my facility, which mm -hmm. is why I need so many humidifiers to begin with. So. Is there a specific humidifier that, you guys recommend? Uh, I personally I like Wicks. Yeah, it was the Wix, but it, what was the what was that brand? Airwick, Airwick is the brand. Um, I I have two different models that I use. There's one that is like a uh, 
a tub model or, or um, it's, it's like a like a, like a bottle model. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a bottle model where where there's two 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 and a half gallon bottles that you fill up and you set mm -hmm. it in, and it's a wick filter off the back, and it has like nine different settings um, for the speed, and then you can set your humidity at whatever you want up to sixty five. Sixty five is like a constant run because in most environments you'll never hit sixty five. But even if my facility is running at like 78 or 80 percent, it never turns off. Uh, the other one I use is it's still the same manufacturer, but it's more of like a corner model. The, it's in the shape of a triangle and we put it in the corner and turn them on. And we adjust, of course, you know, as, as we need different humidities and things. Yeah. One thing that I'm certainly doing with my um, room, because, again, you know, I'm using a room in my house just like many most uh, keepers are, you know, I don't have a dead, I don't have a dedicated built facility. Yep. And, um, with that, I have to deal with the ceiling heights and the capacities room. I, while it's well insulated, I don't have, and have that separate heating source. I don't have the ability to have ceiling fans. So I've had an issue with air circulation, um, throughout the room and as far as it, uh, equalizing temperatures. So my use of different thermostats kind of makes up for that. You know, I'll run temp guns on, throughout the room and at the extremes find an eight degree difference in the room so it, you know the, that that's certainly a consideration people need to look at of you know how the air is circulating in, in the room for equalizing temperatures just for what they're providing for, for the animals so you know you have one one cage in this location another that's identical in another location separate controls they still might provide a different microclimate for the animals inside them got it um, so let's pivot real quick. I want to talk about, uh, your work with the leopard and the blood genes. So give us a little bit of background about the leopard and blood gene and kind of what attracted you to those. Okay. So, um, my, I, I mentioned this early on that, you know, the, the original attraction for the blood boa that was, you know, going through the, uh, um, boa constriction manual, seeing a picture of one of Ron St. Pierre's bloods, you got a tight circle back pattern, um, nice, even color. And just, it's just a red boa. I mean, who? can't like that right and um unfortunately finding animals that look like the, the animal in that book which the, you know plenty of us have that book and anybody else can go buy it cheaply um it doesn't exist <laughs> you can't find that kind of blood bill anymore and um the uh it, looking at that i you know i just i like the small boas i had a tiny nicaraguan boa that had that same circle back pattern and i was just hooked on it um you know I, i've always looked at the this, this kind of the chemistry of mutations and knowing like what's going on. So, you know, you've got the main things you have in, in reptiles, you've got erythrophores, which can uh, handle red pigment. You have xanthophores, which are yellow, melanophores are black, erythrophores control iridescence, and chromatophores are what kind of pulls everything together. Right. So these are all classified as chromatophores. So like a example, so like an albino, um, which is technically, you know, one definition is just something missing. It doesn't necessarily mean it's missing black. Um, but, you know, what we typically think of as albino, so we have true amelanistic, like cal albino, it's missing melanin entirely, no ability to produce it, synthesize it, anything else. But then, and, you know, everybody's familiar with anerythristic, missing red or hypomelanistic, less black. But it's just trying to figure out, okay, what what's actually going on here that's creating this phenotype? Because once you can understand that, then you can understand how it pieces in and works with everything else. So my original attraction for the blood was to try to figure out, is this hyper-erythristic? Is it just 
erythristic, like you would say melanistic. Right. Um, is it maybe it's azanthic and you know you're just removing the yellow? It's not actually an increase of red; you're just taking something else away. You know, trying to figure that out and what's going on there. Um, and that curiosity is what what attracted me to that mutation. Um, some of the history on the morph itself. So the the morph originated from um, Boas from El Salvador. Uh, Ron St. Pierre was the one that had brought those in and uh, worked with the mutation originally. Um, the, the mutation took th three different primary tangents. So you had um, each person that did these started off with a pure El, El Salvador. So you had um, uh, Rich Eiley of Salmon Boa take a pure El Salvador blood, bred it to one of his salmons, and make salmon het bloods. And then the bloody salmon derives from there. And most of the Sun Dragon, Red Dragon, Fire Opals, every Colombian-based um, blood project is primarily from the, those lines. Then you had um, Bill Kirby do take one of his pure El Salvador bloods and breed it to the Hog Islands. That's the project that I, I've continued and Kevin Blumenthal continued, and then a few other breeders um, since then. Then you also had the berry bloods. Now this was one that ends up with constant issues today as people think this is a different mutation. Uh, it's not, it's the exact same mutation. John Berry, so there's two John Berries in the reptile world. One um, here in the US breeds Malagasy boas and some other um, species. The other one uh, had was from and moved back to the UK was breeding boa morphs and ball python morphs. The latter had a super awesome pure El Salvador blood bred it to an import boa, um, which at the time, he was under the impression that it was from Costa Rica, and you can find old posts on Kingsnake saying as much. Um, and he was, the female was really orange, and he was hoping to produce brighter, lighter colored bloods. And um, he produced those uh, or via hets. Well, whenever he bred those together, that import female ended up being het blood, and he produced bloods. Um, through some work, uh, given the fact that I was working with the Costa Ricans at the time, uh, it was later discovered that animal was actually Nicaraguan boa. Um, so making the uh, berry bloods 50% Nicaraguan, 50% El Salvador initially. And the funny thing was, you know, they've gotten this history of being known for being really red. Uh, yet, if you look at those old kingsnake.com boa forum posts, he mentions how they're the orange bloods compared to the pure El Salvador bloods that he produced that year as well. Um, so you had those three primary projects, the berries, the hogs, and then the bloody salmon derivatives. And everything that we see today is primarily off of those. Um, the only breeder that I know of right now working with pure El Salvador blood still was uh, Scott Rass. Um, he had acquired stuff from Kelly and Neville James. They and um, the Barkers were the last ones to breed uh, pure El Salvador bloods that I'm aware of after Ron St. Pierre. Now, separately and similar to uh, um, John Berry's import, the Proved Het, um, at one point, uh, Bob McPhee had produced a unexpected blood bow in captivity that was to two Nicaraguan boas and was pure Nicaraguan. Um, that animal um, did not end up reproducing and had died as an adult. Um, I don't know the full history there. Uh, the other, uh, just, um, I want to say maybe it was 2015, maybe a little bit later, um, uh, Vin Russo had, was breeding some of his high red Nicaraguan boas and paired two together and unexpectedly produced bloods. And I know he's working on producing some right now. So there are pure Nicaraguan boas that are blood boas. Um, and, but other than, other than the stuff from, from Vin on that particular project only, which he hasn't sold any either. So anything from Vin are 
the derivatives from the uh, El Salvador stuff from Ron St. Pierre's line. You just have to look at what things have been done. So you know, they've been crossed with orange tail hypo. Um, people have bred them into Sonoran hypo, um, salmon hypos. With the, the salmon project, those have gone into you know, everything on the Colombian side, motleys, um, jungles, arabesques, uh, cal, sharp, uh, VPI, bow, and caramel, you name it. And um, so if really kind of done everything and anything that you can with the mutation. One aspect uh, as well with the original bloods is they were het type 2 entry. So routinely uh, you'll see things pop up and over mm. the years, okay. none of my animals were, were uh, acquired as known hats, but I knew again with each of the, those pure founding stock that I'd traced everything back to, those were hats and or expected hats. And uh, I have a few times now produced um, type two anaries, type two ghosts. I had actually had a uh, super jungle pewter born in one litter. Um, so th things that were very much unexpected because that anary uh, pops up and rears its head every so often. Yeah. Well, yeah. so I don't, I don't think you guys saw yet. Sorry, I just got back. Um, but Bob McPhee, he just dropped a litter with unknown heads. Really? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, so it was, uh, here, let me read it. I have it right here. So it's from a RLT Motley Het Blood times a Hypo RLT Het Blood uh, that he was breeding, right? So he was going for the Super RLT Motley Bloods and the Hypo versions. And the Call Albino stuff popped out. So he hit the Sun <laughs> what Dragon. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so he... So he that's been tri that, that, that RLT's been carrying that albino gene the whole time. It's a good thing he didn't start a short project with it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Because then who the hell knows what would happen. But yeah, it looks like he hit like a visual super RLT sun dragon maybe. I don't know. Well, I think wow. that's but, one thing too that, you know, people not knowing history of morphs don't realize these hidden genes. Like all the original sharp stuff, the original sharp albino, um, sharp stock was never produced by Brian Sharp. Brian started working with Calstrain and that he bought hats from Pete and um, bred those into Suriname boas and was doing 50% Suriname stuff that was Calabino. His original sharp female, um, I don't remember if he, he did this or I think he did the pairing, um, but then subsequently sold it. So he had bred it to the uh, one of the hats from Pete and got a bunch of normal hats. So all of the original het sharps were 50% het cap. And mm -hmm. we've, you know, there was a, a post in one of the boa groups the other day, somebody bred a, a, a paradise or a paradigm or a paraglow or one of those para combos uh, para, um, paradise to, glow. to, to a, uh, a sharp sun glow jungle. So they thought and got a bunch of normals because that sharp wasn't actually sharp. It was a cow. Now there's two sides of that. There could be something with somebody being dishonest. I'm going to assume it's not, I'm going to give, I don't know who originally produced it or the history of it. And the breeder didn't, you know, ended up taking down the post, but um, you know, knowing that, all the sharp stuff has the cow gene in there. You could easily produce an albino that was cow and you didn't know it. Well, that's and, the same thing with the uh, IMGs too. Right. All of the, all the original all, IMGs were het call. Het call and had anery because and had anery. Yep. Right. So you know people are looking at things like so. One of the combos that I've wanted to do for years with the bloods is I want to do an IMG blood project, um, and my IMGs are het RDR. Well, I can't do that because if my blood ends up being het type 2, 
And later on throughout this, you know, everything, so an IMG that's possible, that is het RDR. So my babies are just going to be possible het RDR, they're possible het type two. If I produce something that's anary in that, I'm not going to necessarily know what it is because yeah, you what, can't is, say what, what is a pewter? Is. A pewter is essentially a black-eyed anary. That's how you tell it from a regular type two anary in that litter is the eyes. A black-eyed anary, well, is it a black-eyed anary from that litter or was it a blood and it's a pewter? Or is it a black-eyed anary pewter, you know? There's no way to know. Yeah. So I it don't want to do convoluted. that because that, that combination can't be identified. So crossing those animals doesn't make any sense. Now, if I have – so if I breed my IMG that's het RDR, breed it to something else, make some other IMGs, then breed one of those to another RDR anary, prove that it's not het, then I could introduce it to the bloods. But otherwise, I'm going to have to acquire an animal from somewhere else. Hmm. So – Talk to me a little bit about the use of uh, kind of the blood gene and uh, the leopard gene in the in Europe versus what is ha or hasn't been done in the U.S. yet. Um, I so I, there's not a whole lot more with blood stuff being done over there than is here that I'm aware of. Um, on the leopard front, uh, so leopard has a very interesting history. So leopards were first identified as a morph called Mephisto. The breeder of which I don't know, but it was in Germany. Then you had Hans Wenner produce his, named it Leopard. That's what everybody's familiar with. Then at another time, you had another boa that was... Um, now, keep in mind as well that the while leopards are allegedly Sonoran, there's no proof that they are Sonoran. Um, you had another breeder in Germany years later produce a boa that they dubbed the Black Pearl, allegedly from Costa Rican stock. Now, while I, I couldn't trace that with exports out of Costa Rica at the time, phenotypically, they were very similar, um, the original parents, to the Liberia Costa Ricans that I had, so I, I fully believe that those were Costa Rican. Um, then you had in Honduran boas in 2008, another one pop up that it was dubbed Superonic. So that one was treated as incomplete dominant. All the others were treated as recessive. Um, very similar phenotypes, and the, the breeders that worked with those assert through to no end that they're a separate mutation. Um, I think some of that has come down to a language barrier um, as, you know, I've even spoken to some of those people and I said, you know, the, you know, the definition of same and how they're treating it. But, you know, the, the aspect that I look at is, and, and this goes in just, you know, morph breeding in general. So you have true mutations, which are caused by a mutant allele. If that, allele is the same, mutant allele, then that mutation is the same. If you have variances within that mutation because of the locality that it's from, and it's then its pattern, its color, um, you know, we can see that in leopards based off of, you know, if they've been bred to uh, Nicaraguan, Panamanian, Colombian, etc., the pattern density, the colors that come out from it all change based on its locality um, lineage. And so that same thing is going on with the leopards. Over there, you know, I'm working on the same things. I just, I guess I'm not feeding my stuff enough because I produced my first leopards in 2008. The first, uh, you know, superonics were produced in 2008 and they've already made, you know, like 12 different multi-recessive combos with, with bloods, positives, anaries, motleys, hypos, everything under the sun. So, yeah. um, <laughs> hell, they've even uh, started getting VPI into it. Right. So, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of things. And that, that's another thing, too, is like I always say, you know, I mean, just in general with breeding, you need to pick the right animals to start. Um, you don't just 
pair of VPI and a leopard. You find the leopard that has the pattern you want, you find the VPI that has the color and traits you want, and right. you, you breed them accordingly. Now, your, your goal might be like, my preference on leopards is that marbled pattern. So I'm gonna wanna pick a VPI that has got thick widow's peak saddles and a, a lot of high pattern density, like some of the original VPIs. Um, somebody else might prefer a leopard that has the spots coming on its back and want the red colors out of its base. So there, you're going to want a leopard that already has some Colombian in it and probably exhibits those traits to start with. Hey know, and it just <laughs> depends on, on what your what your goals are there. And that's what I, Tom and I like different types of leopards, so I always give him crap with his stuff. I said that he's doing <laughs> yeah. the wrong things. And yeah, it's he just, always it's, gives it's, me per, shit. It's personal preference because that's yeah. the look that he wants and that's what everybody's breeding for, right? We're not just... Hopefully, you know, we're not just stacking things just to stack things, but we all know. Yeah, that well, well what I always tell people is, <laughs> is keep and produce and breed what you enjoy, too. You know, you don't have to fit anybody's mold. Just do what you want to do and what makes you happy. I, I think where people really fall short is they, uh, they kind of get caught up in the game of competition and such. And so they start doing things that they don't necessarily, they're not passionate for. Or they don't prefer over others because other people are doing it, right? They're just kind of following the pack. But it's like, break free from that and just make what you like. So, you know, Chris and Chris's version of what he considers a pinnacle leopard, I think is absolutely beautiful. And I would love to see it in a VPI. Unfortunately, I don't have any that can do that for me. But I do have something else that is already Colombian-based and has more of that reduced pattern. But, you know, high color on the background. So I also I also don't of, think what I like in a leopard could actually exist in a VPI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I mean, the the morphs themselves would right. just clash yeah, like, and kind of negate its capability. Yeah, I, I think unless you unless you took a VPI first and say like bred that to like this is going to sound blasphemous, but you know just I'll explain it. Take a VPI, breed it to a Tarha Maraboa. Um, mm -hmm. That's the highest sat saddle count pattern density um, that I can think of. You then keep the hats that look most like the Tarahumara, uh, make your visual VPI there, and then breed that back to that marbled leopard, then you might be able to do it. Um, yeah, 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 because you're keeping that pattern count density. On, yeah, saddle right. count on a Colombian, you're not going to have it. You know, it's just going to it's gonna separate that pattern and take other controls on. Well, I'll tell you, for example, one of the things that I'm doing. So I'm currently breeding BPI to leopard stock, but much like you guys said earlier, you know, there was a specific look and type of leopard that I wanted right. to try to find with my... One of the things that I went heavy in was a lot of the orange belly leopards, right? So with that pattern, it took me a while to find the right leopard to fit that project. And the only reason that I'm doing that is because... Uh, much like uh, that habanero boa that was produced uh, in Europe uh, about a month and a half ago, okay? I want to essentially create some sort of color pigmentation enrichment on the belly area because that's one of the areas that we really don't see anything being done with, uh, with the VPI line, right? And it's just something that I want to see for myself. I'm essentially producing what and I that, want and for that, me. And that's, that, that's a color trait that, you know, is coming from Honduran boas and from the original leopards is the, right. those red bellies. So that's, those are those other aspects that, again, you know, things that you want to put into your projects, you have to figure out where do they come from it. so how do I get them? You know, because right. you can't, they're just not going to materialize it out of thin air. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not the type well, of Well, to some people they will. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. Right. It's amazing how some people just have certain things just pop out of nowhere. Yeah, it's just like, it's like chronic, like six six a month or something, you know? Yeah, yep. like five, five new mutations out of a single locality that was imported one time. Yep. So what, <laughs> what, what, what's your number one kind of plan for the, for each one of these genes for the immediate future? Um, I'm combining them. <laughs> yeah, so, <there> <laughs> uh, 
the uh, honestly they're my favorite so i want to just put them together that's it um the uh the first so every single project that i've started i have not been the first to combine those base mutations but in many times i i have hit the the end result sooner and oftentimes you know not to be an ego maniac but i i look at my example versus somebody else's and i i like the phenotype that I've produced better. Right. Um, the uh, the blood leopard stuff, um, double heads were produced two years before I made my heads. Um, but I didn't like the individual animals chosen to make those heads. Um, and it was it came down to not only the, the individual phenotype of the parents, it came down to the locality blend, and it came down to the introduction of hypo from the start. Um, now, when I started the blood leopard project, I also went into it assuming it was going to be a terrible project. So, Motley Bloods. Some of the original ones have matured to be black snakes. A lot of Motley Bloods, you can only tell their blood by looking at the eyes. They're just so dark, the Motley impact on color just really throws off the blood and they don't, they lose being a red boa. My assumption was based on the uh, depth of dark pigment with the leopards that it was going to do the same thing. Now there become a problem just like we were talking before about uh, RDR mixed in with type 2 anery and blood and picking out, oh is this a black-eyed anery or is this a pewter? If I have a blood leopard and the leopard is dominating the color, am I going to be able to tell that it's a blood? So I, again with like all the other times that I've mentioned it, I started off with a, a pure as pure of each side as I could. So I went to, I picked the lightest color hog blood that I could um, and bred that to a leopard, figuring, you know, okay, I'm adding the hog genes in, but I'm still keeping out the Panamanian and Colombian. The key on there was both of those impact the pattern in a way that I don't like. Um, so I still want to be able to produce marbled leopards, but I want to, if the hog gene might be enough to lighten them so I can see what's going on. Well, with that project, um, I actually unlocked a new project, which is just, you know, again, it, it, for lack of a better name, I've just termed it the Gilbert T positive. Um, so this gene is you know, tracing the lineage. It's got to be from the Hog Island side of the blood. And it's a gene that ex exists out there already. The desert is allegedly also Hog Island. So if that was, it, that may very well be the same gene. Um, don't know right now until that would be done. I unfortunately don't have any desert stock and I'm not selling any of my T-positives right now. Although, unbeknownst to me, I have actually been selling them for years. <laughs> um, the uh, I kept a couple bloods in 2011 that I thought might be T-positive and subsequently each year as well. You know, I produced um, some more hog bloods in 2018, um, kept one back that uh, appears T-positive, but then 2019 with the breeding of the double het blood leopards together, I produced the standalone T-positive gene and proved without a doubt that it was a, a separate mutation there. Yeah. Um, so it was isolated. So one of the leopards that I produced last year looks like it might be this uh, T-positive form. The other one I think might be or blood. Um, I won't know until I, I breed those to respective things. So you know, take a, a leopard that's possibly a blood. Um, I'll just breed it to an unrelated blood boa. If I get a full litter of bloods, then it was a blood. If I don't, then it wasn't. Hmm. You know, that's how I'll know. But um, 
you know, comparing that animal to leopards that I've produced in my, my own lineages, I feel confident that it is a combo, but just like I expected, it's not, it's not a radical difference. Um, but I, I, with the, the genes that I've put together there, I really like the outcomes. I uh, think the leopards were really cool. The bloods that were really cool out of those litters. So I'm going to continue working with that. And that's been my uh, primary focus. Well, I'm stoked so. to hear that you, you're potentially working with the Desert T+. Plus. That's one that I've actually been working with for a while because it was originated out of Arizona. Right. right? So I, I, I'm still hitting that pretty hard. And I got some super secret stuff. That well, if you've, seen, if you've seen those as babies, yep. you know, take, take a oh, look yeah. at my babies and compare them with their het siblings. And um, see if that's got the same kind of color spectrum as well. Obviously, you know, mine are going to be a little bit wacky because they're fifty percent Sonoran, twenty five percent El Salvador, and twenty five percent Hog Island. So, well, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, and one of the things that I've kind of postulated with the Desert T Plus stuff, not to get too heavy into this one, is that the babies definitely have a distinct that our hats definitely definitely have a distinct look to them. Okay, I don't know if that is the potential involvement of the Hog Island stuff, as you alluded to, right? I would but guess, there's a, but there's like a cleanliness to them, right? That's yeah, I, I, I would really guess that's the hog traits, um, yep. and that's one thing. You know, I, you know, whenever I was breeding head to head with the blood stuff before, I just started primarily working with just blood to blood breedings. Um, on the fifty percent hog stuff, I would produce a lot of animals that would look Hog Island. Now. I also realized that they may well have just actually been T positive. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's some complexities there, but I think that's one thing too, is, you know, a lot of people, when they do these crosses or especially whenever they don't know the lineage of animals, they'll see a trait pop up and they'll think it's a new morph and right. it's not, it's just part of that gene. You know, you have missing things that are missing saddles or have thin saddles propensity for reverse striping, um, pattern aberrancies, uh, saddle shape, size, color, um, number of saddles, all those things are, you know, vary across different boa populations. And if you're not aware of those differences, when you look at something, you're going to think it's a mutation, but it's not. And it's not to say that it's not reproducible. So it, it may still have a purpose and you may still be able to use it and direct the, the look of the actual morphs you are breeding, but then you know you and people end up calling things a new morph that again isn't a single gene mutation right so let me ask you this um being that more people are beginning to work with the leopard and the blood gene and it's something as you've alluded to that has been kind of worked pretty hard in, in europe especially in like germany do you think these genes uh both the leopard and the blood are poised to be some of the key genes in the hobby in the future i think given how extreme they are they would have to be. Yeah, you know, I agree. Um, and I think one thing that held it back was just the people that didn't want to do crosses. Um, you know, or I think with the leopards in particular, um, early on, you know, there were a lot of issues with them. Um, Hans didn't outcross. Um, there were, you know, people were feeding them too much. They were keeping them too hot. Um, they weren't, you know, they were keeping them like a puppy mill Colombian boa breeder that versus keeping them like a locality breeder. And right. The, you know, that's one thing too is a, a lot of those differences that I talk about with like my my setups when cooling and temperatures that I use and and the leopards and locality bow success in general, it works. Um, but is it necessarily? Uh, well, early on, yes. Later on, no. You know, there's um one of the uh, guys that's very similar to 
you know, some of the boa people we know, but in different species, uh, Nick Mutton with his uh, oh, yeah. Nick Mutton, carpet yeah. pythons, right. doing pure pure carpet pythons. He's he's talked about this too on Morelia Python Radio, saying like, you know, I, I cool and feed cycle. But then my customers are saying, oh, I don't do anything. I just pair them together and they breed. And he's like, yeah, because you have essentially domestic animals. You know, right. three generations in captivity, they're going to be a lot e- easier to breed than these ones that are straight out of the wild or F1s. Yeah. So, you know, I've had things where I, I tried to do a, um, and had I been successful on either of the two attempts, it's the only female boa ever that I've had that I couldn't get to breed. I tried breeding my leopard to a sharp albino to make double hats. And I was not willing to subject that sharp female to too low of temperatures because I was worried about killing her. And um, so I'm trying to, you know, balance animals that have different breeding cues and it never worked. And ultimately, um, you know, she did die. Um, whenever I, uh, the last breeding attempt and she was, you know, 10 years old at the time. And it's just, you know, the, and I, I had mentioned that, you know, without a, a name on it, the breeder that had lost uh, a Colombian boa, whenever they had taken a, a pure Colombian morph to a pure Sonoran leopard to try to do those initial crosses. So I think now that we have leopards that have Colombian genes or Nicaraguan genes or just diversity of uh, bloodlines with whatever morph project or locality type animals you're looking at doing, there's they become a lot easier to breed. Yeah. So I think that'll help with uh, their popularity. Yep. Now I'm with you, man. All right, guys, we're gonna take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're gonna hit the dirty dozen. The dirty dozen. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the Dirty Dozen. So, Chris, I'm going to ask you 12 questions. You give me 12 answers. They can be as short or as long as you want them to be, okay? Sounds good. Number one, what is the size of your current collection? So I actually had to count this because I I knew this was coming from listening to the other podcasts. So I'm at 92 boas right now. Um, And then I'm at 122 snakes total with the other species that I have. Okay. Yeah, you're pretty much where I'm at right now. All right, number two. <laughs> uh, I've been doing this longer than you. <laughs> uh, frozen thought or live, and what's your betting choice? Uh, frozen thought. Um, I start my babies off in frozen thought. I feed live for a baby as a last resort, um, but I've had good luck. And actually, I just started doing that the past two years. I used to start babies off on on live hoppers and then switch them to frozen after two or three meals. But um, 2018, 2019, started everything off on frozen, and it, it's been good. Um, betting choice. Um, I use cocoa right now. Uh, I've also, um, I'll keep some uh, supply of, uh, su- uh, I think it's superior shipping. They're, um, Reptizorb liners. I'll keep some of those on okay. standby. Um, and, uh, I also, I'll use, uh, sphagnum moss too, for some snakes that need higher humidity. Ooh, okay. Nice call, man. Uh, number three, uh, what's your favorite morpher locality? Nebulosa. Hmm. Yeah, it's his dream uh, snake. Yep, Bo- Boa Nebulosa from Dominica. Uh, there was one breeder that had them in the country years ago. Uh, I don't know of anybody with them now. Uh, I know uh, somebody in Germany bred them, um, you know, five or six years ago. The last time that I know of, allegedly, there's one of those the crazy, weird boa species people that have managed to bring them into the U.S., but they have not come out publicly with it. And uh, but I, I would I would trade my entire boa genus so that's right specific you know the the boa constrictor stuff imperator sigma constrictor for nebulosa if i had the opportunity for some reason i thought crutchfield had some Hmm. 
Um, I know he's posted pictures of them. You can easily find them if you go to Dominica. You just can't get them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're Sites 1. I don't believe so. I think Occidentalis is the only Sites 1 um, animal. But, yeah, they're just they're super cool. <laughs> All right. Number four, what is the most overrated morph or locality? Um, so I, I don't – I hate – hate this one because i feel like you're throwing people under the bus um what i'm going to say i didn't hesitate what was the problem i didn't even hesitate i'm going to say this and i'll let people okay what's the uh, one that appeals to you the least i guess the the best well i'm gonna i'm gonna answer it two parts so one um i'll answer the aspect of how morph is construed i hate the most overrated morphs are the morphs that aren't actually mutations People that are naming polygenic traits or wild type um, attributes from crossing different localities as a single gene mutation, they're calling them dominant or incomplete dominant, not understanding where that trait came from. Again, those things may be inheritable, but doesn't mean they're mutations. So my, my most overrated morph are the ones that aren't real morphs. But from an actual mutation standpoint, um, scoria. And it just comes down to um, it's a deficient mutation. Um, you know, the neurologic problems, people saying, oh, there's some that don't have it. Every mutation that is a mutation is impacting a protein in the animal. And clearly that one is impacting a protein that that animal needs. Um, Nick Mutton's uh, done some talks on that with uh, Jaguar carpets um, and the uh, ball python mutations that have neurological issues too. And I know he's spoken to the actual proteins involved with the development of the animals. They're responsible, but I, I can't get behind it because it's just harming the animal. All right, number five. What's the most underrated morph or locality? Um, I'm going to put that as my favorite one, Nebulosa, because nobody knows about it. There was a post, um, you know, not too long ago. People were asking, like, what's your favorite morph? You know, what, what do you want? And, you know, people are picking all these super high expensive mutations and combos and everything else. And, um, you know, a couple of people, you know, put on s- some bloodlines of known things, but nobody put Nebulosa. And I think it's just comes down to a lot of the the audience out there um, that is active in social media is often newer and not familiar with things and nobody just had ever heard of it so i'd say that's definitely the most underrated okay all right man number six what's your favorite part of the hobby um those individuals that are always looking to um, push it to the next level and to share information um you know i i got started heavy into the bow world when I was 15 going to first time I went to Daytona and meeting some big breeders and they had no idea how old I was because I communicated via emails and they just, they thought that I was older than I was. Mm -hmm. And, but if it wasn't for their help and support, wouldn't have been able to accomplish anything. And, um, you know, seeing that kind of thing is alive and well, it is good. Uh, And, um, you know, I, am always anxious to, to help people that are really looking to learn. Like you have the people that'll ask a question, but they just want an affirmation of the way they're doing things. Um, and then you have the people that are really, you know, curious to know histories of things and, you know, why certain things are done, not just how to do it, but the reasons behind it. And um, those are the things that I like always, always learning and advancing. Nice. Number seven, what's the worst part of the hobby? The ones that don't do that. <laughs> so the people that, you know, don't treat... <laughs> The, the ones that treat things as trade secrets, um, they don't want to tell you how to breed your boas because they don't want you to produce the same thing that they're working with. Um, the ones that want to, you know, talk down on people that um, because they can't afford some fancy new morph. Um, you know, you have 
crappy keepers that have expensive snakes and you have gold star keepers that have low dollar value animals and you know the it's what we're providing for these animals and the proper care that's important and sharing information so that they can benefit and we can benefit and the hobby can advance together. I think that's one thing that, you know, I think Europe is way ahead of us on is, and a lot of this comes down to different countries having standards on caging too, but they put a lot more effort into um, providing proper caging and equipment. Whereas here we've still got people going to Petco, buying a, a, an aquarium with a screen lid and a heat rock for their new boa and that there's no reason for that anymore yep all right man number eight so this one we're going to modify slightly which is what other species are kept and why because we you've already answered this so i'm going to ask you this <laughs> do you have what other non-boa species do you keep and why? okay so the non-boa species i have um the only one that's part of a breeding project is um liasis fuscus australian water pythons um the other ones that are kept um, out of curiosity and for pets, I have a opal diamond ball python, which is a combination of phantom and russo. Right. I have a T-negative albino blood python. Um, I have a carpondro that's 75% green tree, 12.5% diamond, 12.5% jungle. And then I have um, some scaleless Texas rat snakes. Oh, cool. All the right, only yeah. colubrid that made their way in. Yep. Nine. Uh, what is a common misconception about you? Um, that I'm an arrogant asshole. Um, I think that, that's literally know. the exact same answer that I gave. I'm not was shitting it? you. Literally <laughs> verbatim. verbatim. Um, because, you know, I, probably is in the same aspect. You know, I want to share accurate information and I I don't get on any groups or anything on social media to, you know, make people look bad. I get on there when something bad is being shared and, and it sucks that that needs to be said. You know, I, I put a, a post, I think I made it, um, you know, a announcement on one of the pages, like, you know, essentially think before you speak, you know, if the person writing should, you know, knows or putting out a YouTube video knows if they know the information or not. If you don't know, don't say anything. That's it. You know, don't don't disseminate information that's just going to do harm to somebody. Um, you know, they're trying to take care of their animals properly or, or look for that advice. Um, and I think the way that I write, um, you know, I, I essentially write for a living and, you know, doing, you know, business writing and credit proposals and risk summaries and stuff for the bank. The whenever I'm the way I write is very direct, um, very factual. And the the lack of emotion that comes there can come off as condescending and uh, demeaning. All right. Number 10. What makes you say, what was I thinking when you look back at your time in the hobby? Um, selling off all those weird, obscure species to just focus on boas <laughs> and then having to go get them again. Like, had I kept breeding rough-scaled sand boas <laughs> back when I did that, like, I'd have seen the really rough cool stuff by kin. now. Right, right. <laughs> Yep. It took me forever to find um, water pythons again. Oh, yeah. It's not easy. They're, like, they're not common. That's like all these things that you used to be able to go to a show. Now, granted, they're going to be from a flipper or whatever. But you used yeah. to be able to go to a show. Like I could see a Savu python for $100. Oh. I don't know the last time I saw a Savu python. Well, look at white at white-lift pythons right now. Right. Like how their prices have just jumped through the roof these last couple of years. You used to right. be able to get those things for like 70 bucks over here at like the Pomona right. show back in the you know early 2000s. All right. 
number 11, what is one tip you would give the people looking to invest in boas and reptiles? Um, invest in the, uh, the person you're going to do business with. Um, so in addition to like all the topics that I talked about on care and husbandry and the right equipment, um, look at how people are keeping their animals. You know, even the bad ones often show how bad their husbandry is, Mm -hmm. you know, support those that are taking that extra effort and doing the right thing. Um, because one, obviously they're doing something right and they know how to do it. And they're usually more than willing to help you out as well. Um, but you know, the, the worst thing to get is as a, as a keeper is somebody that asks for help for an animal that they bought from somebody else that they could have got that same thing from you, but they went somewhere else for it cheaper. And then when they have problems, yeah. they come to you and it, you know, you still want to help them because the, the, the animal welfare is the one that counts the most, but it's just, you know, and, and you, you gotta, you gotta support the guys that are doing it right. Absolutely, man. All right. Final one. Number 12, any shout outs you want to give out? Um, Shout outs are, might be cliche to some, but they're going to be family to, you know, my parents and my cousin. Those are the ones that, you know, helped me out and supported me whenever I got started and, uh, you know, allowed things to happen. Uh, you know, parents helping me with the collection whenever I was in college. My cousin that pushed me back to Arboreals and has been my, uh, you know, sounding bar since I, I got started day one. So Awesome, man. Well, guys, that wraps it up for today. Um, Chris, uh, tell the people out there where they can see your animals and learn more about you. Sure. Um, so um, my only Facebook presence is personal, uh, just Christopher Gilbert. Um, might be hard to, to find, um, but you know, you'll see me on, on boa groups and posting things. Um, but the easiest way to see stuff and anything that I post boa-related is going to be on my Instagram, um, which is Gilbert underscore boas. And then my website is gilbertboas.com. All right, Tom, tell the people where they can find you. I got it on Facebook and Instagram, both just under Boatics. Uh, Facebook.com slash Boatics and on Instagram, just search in Boatics and you'll see tons of cool pictures, I'm sure. Awesome. And you guys can find me at uh, morphs underscore unleashed on Instagram. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We are out. Guys, that was a great episode. Thanks to Chris Gilbert of Gilbert Boas for joining us today. Join us next time as we speak with Richard Del Bono of the Binti Boa. We're going to talk about his work with Central American Morphs, along with tips on how to grow your boas the right way. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Do us a favor. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Until next time, grow them slow. <laughs>